In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1946 to 1959. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 1946. Story number one. A Dragon's Hug, written by Fiamma Galathon. It was cold. So freaking cold. The ship was broken. The motors bent and crushed beyond repair, and I was stuck in a room with a human. Alone. He seemed pretty undisturbed by the chill, and tried to make himself as unthreatening as possible. Golnax, please. I wasn't sure if I was trembling more from the cold or from terror. Why, it had to be a human. This giant with a creepy voice, like the horrors from the stories you were told, as a hatchling to scare them into going to the ceremonies. From the whole crew of a hundred people, from a severely different species, that I would be completely fine being stuck with. It had to be the only human on board. Just my luck. A shiver racked with my whole body. Talfin, slowly going bluish. I wouldn't survive much longer in these conditions, and help wasn't arriving any time soon. The movement captured the attention of the human, his face wrinkling. I hissed at him, hoping it would drive him off enough to let me die in peace. Too late, I recognized a telltale rumble coming from him, nearly subsonic. The translator chipped word into work. Hey, hey little guy, you look distressed. Wait, your species doesn't come from the desert, does it? Uh, oh, oh, God, it must be too cold for you. Hang on, I have an idea. His gigant, towering form scooted nearer, and my mind overcame terror. Don't come closer. I nearly didn't recognize my voice in the snarl that I let out. How will die anyway? You can eat me after that. Another shiver took my body, wings starting to go numb. I'm not going to eat you. What the feck? You look like you're terribly cold. Even my scanner picks up the distress signals from yours. And we need to both be alive when help arrives. Am I that scary? Like even wild animals back on Earth weren't as wary of me as you are right now. I only want to help, really. And, well, uh, humans are warm-blooded, and you are the size of my forearm, dude. I can share warmth. My jacket seems far better in insulation than your coat. The rumbling from the human decreased volume, but he kept talking and lowering himself to the ground so that he could look at me in the eyes. Crew member Hirilik, aren't you? Nice to meet you. I'm Carol, from the researchers' group. My thoughts started to swim away from me, but it seemed like he reached over with one paw, still talking, the low rumble muddling my thinking. I hadn't had enough energy to move away. Shh! It's funny, you know. I look scary for you, but you look like the monsters from our folk tales. Just tiny. <laughs> hey, shh! And I'm not going to hurt you. One of his claws, dull and mellow, gently touched my left forepaw. It was warm. So nice. I dragged my head closer to his arm. Mmm, warmth. Hirilik, hey bro, are you still with me? Dude, I'm gonna scoop you up. Lying on the cold metal won't do you any good. Shh. A warm appendage wrapped itself around the base of my wings, lifting me up, like mom did when I was little. Little. So little. The world abruptly shifted, becoming darker, warmer, and smelly. I was too out of it to care. Warmth engulfed me, the human's breath whistling a weirdly comfy tune. Here you go, buddy. Better. Uh, God, just tiny. Hey, uh, I hope this isn't rude or anything in your culture. The rumble of his voice had a nice, soft quality that I was too scared to hear before. His warmth, soft claws tucked my wings somewhere warmer and grabbed the end of my tail, touch nearly burning on the cold scales. 
Instinctively, I dug my claws into whatever held up to. But it was something soft, yet resistant. Ah, that hurt, dude. Good that my shirt was pretty thick. Your claws are sharp. Hey, don't wiggle. Ah, not for feck's sakes. Stay still. Good. I'm closing the zipper. Don't freak out. And done. All nice and warm. Good God. I really hope you won't backfire spectacularly. I'm gonna sit down in the corner and get the emergency blanket out of the first aid kit. Hang on, buddy. We're gonna survive. Just hang on. Shh. The gentle warm pressure all over my body was blessing. I may or may not have started purring. Okay, you okay in there, bro? Yeah, right. Purr to your heart's content. Not like it makes me embarrassed. Lord, that was a bad idea. All right. Okay, Carol. Get your crap together. Focus. The blanket. The blanket. Ha! Found it! The rustling of some sort of foil grabbed my attention. Some seconds later, the world stopped trembling and shaking. Only the steady rise and fall of the thing I was clinging to remained. Hurlick, huh? A nice name. Rather chirpy, huh? I hope we both make it out of here. Your stats look pretty bad. Hey, get that tail somewhere else, please. Oh, God. Okay, bro, please. I get that it's warmer down here, but, uh, like, uh, two centimeters to the right, all right? Uh, thanks. No, I'm not so bad at this, anyway. Do you have any family back on your home planet? I have my brother and sister. They're twins. Menaces. Why am I even telling you all of this? Feck. Hey, hey, look at me. Yes, that's good. Keep those eyes open. Don't go to sleep. We'll be all right. We'll be all right. <laughs> Jasek would be so jealous. I got to cuddle with the dragon. I can't believe I said that. Hey, look at that. Your stats got slightly better. That's good. Good. I hope they'll find us soon. It, there. It says it should be somewhere where it's at least 40 degrees Celsius. I'm too cold for you. I could light a fire, but uh, carbon monoxide in my lungs don't go well together. The steady rumble of the human speech was comforting. I was happy that I wasn't alone. This is the rescue group, Gerontivus. We're coming. Hang on. How many survivors? Here, crew member scientist Carol, a human, was with a Dracorian named Hirilik. Bay 4, hatch 5, the maintenance room. The Dracorian, uh, he passed in his sleep from hypothermia. I wish you could have gotten here sooner. Okay. The rest of your crew is safe. Three dead, two in critical condition, 16 injured. The rest is okay. You did everything you could. We're on our way. I know. I know, but God, it was not enough. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't be. It wasn't your fault. We're coming. Stay where you are. End of story. Story number two. Humans run hot. Written by writer unblocked. So, what do you do again? I'm a wellness assistant in short-term care facility. You're working in medical, basically, yeah. Oh, in sweet fact, did you manage that? Easy. I'm not doing surgery or anything. I'm pretty much a glorified babysitter. I hang out in, like, a recovery rooms and make sure people aren't having a bad time. I'm essentially the guy who gets you juice and a cookie after you donate blood. And, uh, that pays good? Good enough. There's a ton of different Xenos on the station, so I need to either remember or be able to quickly look up how to help any and everyone and pretty short notice. A lot of staff cycles through the cause so they can't keep up. I like it, because it's like a big puzzle. You hate puzzles, no. I hated sifting through the tiny pieces of cardboard trying to differentiate them between shades of blue. Uh-huh. Well, I need to get back to work. And I imagine you should too. Talk again sometime, okay? Anytime.
I tapped my right ear, bending the call, and then stretching out to white with a groan. The small reptilian in my lap opened one eye and glared at me for a moment, clearly annoyed that I moved, but it stayed nonetheless. Who was that? Following the voice to my left ear, I saw a familiar human face. Hey, Clark, what's up? It was one of my aunts, uh, pretty sure I've told you about her. She's living on Mars now, doing a rotation in the greenhouse domes. Sounds familiar. And your mom's side, right? Yep. How's work been so far? As chill as ever. I shifted again, fully settling into the massive beanbag chair. This time the small reptile choked at me and crawled up on my chest. Easy, little guy. I'm good now. Not going anywhere. It stared into my eyes for another few seconds before dropping down and curling up to go back to sleep. You ever gonna tell your family that your job title is bullcrap and that you're a little more than a space eater in daycare? Would you, I chuckled, trying to minimize movement after suffering a small Zeno's wrath again before looking around at the half-dozen small creatures crowding around me. My sister thinks it's hilarious. Well, everyone I'm related to would say that I'm a toxic environment and that I'm being used. Either that, or if it's not real work since I'm not building or breaking anything. So no, I'll keep lying through my teeth. He shrugged at that and dragged the cushion over to me to sit down. He was immediately approached by a small mob similar to mine. Excuse me, the translated speech came through my earpiece as a Zeno incapable of speaking English entered the room. Are either of you hemodonors? It was holding a small containment cell with a leech-like creature in it. I raised my left arm and rolled up my sleeve at the same time. The Xena rushed over, held the cell up to my arm and opened it. In a flash of movement, the leech launched itself forward and bit into my flesh. I flinched at the sharp pain and kept my arm tense. This one was smaller than I donated for in the past. That, on top of how rough it was, meant that it was probably young and hopefully wouldn't need too much. Well, that is literally a parasitic species latched onto you right now, so the whole thing about you being used isn't too far off, is it? Clark, I'd barely been doing this a month, and they asked if there was anything that they could bring in to make the job easier. I said beanbag chair as a joke. This thing showed up a week later. I couldn't care less if all this place sees me as is a self-heating blood bag. End of story. 1947 Plagues, written by Objective Campaign 82 Minister Ulik stood by the hardened glass that divided her bunker from the hellfire outside. She stood and watched as great human warplanes flew low arcs over what was once the thriving metropolitan heart of Ixi. Now it and all the world was little more than ash. The Umbi and their Vecan allies had laughed when they heard that humans had rules of war. A lesser race barely clinging to existence on their pathetic world trying to dictate what was and wasn't allowed in war to races who'd been expanding across the galaxy long before their ancestors had even discovered fire. It had seemed comical. They began the war as a means of teaching the humans a lesson, and they had delighted in ticking off some of the so-called war crimes one by one. The Queen Matriarch had considered making the humans into a client race once they had won. After the humans had learned who was really in charge, not anymore. It had seemed like the humans were cowering before the combined might of the Umbi and Vecan, losing battle after battle. But now they knew that they were only biding their time, stoking the hot coals of rage in their counterattack. Without warning or preamble, three Anbi worlds 
and four vacant worlds came under attack from humanity. They claimed orbital control with a disdainful ease, pushing back their defense fleets within only minutes. The planetary defense forces readied and prepared themselves for an invasion, but none came. Instead, the humans launched pod after pod into the oceans, maybe 10,000 in total. And then they just disappeared after leaving one last message. Thus said the Lord. They were confused and tried to investigate the pods, but whatever they had held had been released into the oceans without trace. For six days, no one knew what the humans had done until the seventh day came. On the seventh day, all the world's oceans began to turn to blood. Thick, red, gooey blood, ripe with hemoglobin. People panicked and the scientists tried to figure out how the oceans had turned red overnight. They found a new microorganism in the water with obvious signs of genetic modification that was consuming all native plankton within the water and released the blood as a byproduct. Planetary governments raced to discover a solution to the bloody water attack the humans created and were unprepared for when the organisms mutated again. The microorganisms clumped up and transformed into little mites that rushed to the land and infested people's bodies biting, clawing, and infesting in their fur. The mites jumped from one person to another with ease, crawled under their sealed doors and up drain pipes. People went mad with scratching and rashes, and no amount of soap and water could wash them off. Seven days later, every non-sapient animal on the planet became diseased and quickly died in the thousands. There were so many corpses flooding the land that it was impossible to remove all the bodies. They tried constructing massive pyres for burning the corpses, but the noxious smoke they released was fatally poisonous, so the beasts had to be left to rot on the streets. Seven days after that, people began to break out in boils and lesions, a blood-borne illness brought on by the bugs. People tried scratching and clawing at their skin until they bled. It was at this point in the outbreak that a full evacuation of the planet was declared. Government officials, leaders of industry, military personnel, men and children, Anyone who was still healthy tried to flee en masse. That was when the human fleets returned. They fired upon any ship that left atmosphere, then forced the escape ships to land for safety's sake. They had sent plea after plea for the humans to let them leave. They begged and prostrated themselves before the lesser race, but the humans never responded. There was no umbi counterattack. The High Matriarch had written the worlds off as a complete and utter loss. Seven days after people had broken out in boils and lesions, human planes descended into the atmosphere and began to spread the white sticky substance across the world. At the same time, their ships lobbed planetary bombs at the helpless worlds. The white sticky substance ignited and burned with an acrid scent that soon filled the world. It would stick to the buildings, trees, water and skin, burning everything it touched. People tried to flee, but nowhere was safe. They tried to hunker underground, only to spread the sickness faster between themselves. The worst part was that after society had collapsed on these worlds, the humans took over the broadcasts and began to show the galaxy what had become of these worlds. The Queen Matriarch openly declared these worlds lost and began preparing deeper defenses on all the remaining planets. Outpost worlds were undefendable stations were abandoned, leaving the citizens to fend for themselves if the humans came. Somehow, over the fall of Ixie and other worlds like it, the public changed the way it thought of humans. Before the attack, 
galactic news broadcasts would note war with boredom and contempt, and the datanets made jokes about how badly the humans were outmatched. But now, there was fear and confusion in the minds of the people as they tried to comprehend what kind of deranged species would create such suffering. Seven days after the burning of these worlds began, the humans offered a conference to negotiate peace. Their only condition is that the conference would take place on Ixie. So Ulik had been sent from the homeworld and now stood next to the human ambassador and watched as the world continued to burn around them. There weren't any people left in the broken metropolis of Ixie, and yet they still spread their fire. Ulik glanced at her human counterpart and saw an unmistakable glee in the human's eyes. Beautiful, isn't it? The red-haired woman said, the first word she had spoken since Ulik had joined by the window. The admirals only wanted to orbitally bombard the world, but I made a bid for using napalm. I said, imagine how beautiful the flames will be. It'll be a spectacle greater than Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Ulik stared at the woman. No, the psychopath in horror. One of her own aides turned to vomit. It is a shame, she continued, unperturbed by the reactions. All of the other plagues worked just as we expected, except the frogs. Something about this world prevented the tadpoles from infesting every freshwater lake, river, and stream. And of course, we couldn't figure out how to blacken the sun for three days either. She sighed before turning to Ulik, fire drenched within her deep green eyes, and Ulik felt her whole body grow cold. Well, shall we discuss negotiations then? The human said pleasantly, with a wave over the, to the table. Ulik swallowed down her revulsion at the lesser woman. No. This lesser monster ordering her around, not caring for all the suffering just outside the window. Yes, uh, let's, she grunted out stiffly. The human woman and her aides sat at one end of the table, while her own group sat at the other end. Refreshments, the monster offered. We had an unbloodied water from the ship, and or coffee, if you prefer. Ulik's own mouth was dry. Water, she croaked. The monster smiled and waved towards an attendant. A male rose and walked around to the table, placing cups in front of everyone before pouring out crystal clear water, something that was now a luxury on Ixie. Ulik stared at the strange malformed white cups until something clicked in her mind as she realized that the cups were all umby skulls. The skulls of people collected and polished by these murderers to be used as tableware. Something wrong? The ambassador asked, taking a sip out of her own skull cup. Releasing a satisfied, ah, something about watching flames really makes a girl thirsty. Now, on to business. The United Nations of Earth would like to end all this silly little war. As pretty as the flames are, the cost of napalm is starting to become a little too high for our liking. Our terms are as follows. The Umbi League will claim full responsibility for the war and will repay the UNE an amount equal to ten times what we spent on this little spat over the course of the fifty Terran years. The planets of Ixi, Kalti, and Uruks are to be ceded to the UNE, along with any star, planetoid, and comet within ten light-year radius around each world's parent state. The MB will be required to pull out of their alliance with the Viking, and must also openly denounce the Viking Empire. Is there anything else you would like to add? Any extra tribute your people offer humanity will be greatly appreciated. Rage. Black, toxic rage poured through Ulik. You lesser end, you dare dictate terms to us. We could have bombed the entirety of your home world from the start of the war. We only held back because we did not wish to ruin the future dominion of our queen. 
and yet you have the nerve to demand such outrageous terms for peace, she roared, losing her famously cool and patient demeanor. The red-haired creature laughed. <laughs> it's a good thing you didn't try to take Earth. We would have had to initiate scorched Earth protocol and ignite all the fusion bombs we stuck in our mantle. I have a lovely cabin on Earth, and it would have been a shame to lose my summer home. Ulick sneered at the creature's bluff. You wouldn't dare destroy your home world. The creature's gaze turned frosty. Try us, it challenged. Ulick's blood ran cold as she saw the small glimmer of sanity in the human's eyes. The first sign of sanity. And it was claiming that the humans would ruin their own world to keep it out of unbe hands. Ulick would have thought it to be a bluff. But the stone-cold look in the human's eyes told her that she was being dead serious. You've already seen what other lengths we are willing to traverse in war. Why challenge our conviction now? It shook its head and sighed. You're still not getting it, are you? Fine. Dimitri, my briefcase, please. She commanded one of the male aides, her jovial mirth returning as quickly as it had left. The aide brought out a leather briefcase and placed it on the table. After seeing the human choice of tableware, she didn't want to guess that the creature the leather had once belonged to. The human opened the case and displayed its contents to Ulik. Inside were ten glass vials, all filled with different colored liquids. The final plague on the list is the plague of the firstborn children. But we figured that since we went this far, we might as well go above and beyond. In here, we have the best human bioengineering has to offer, each specifically tailored to one particular kind of agony. Her hand reached over to the red one. This one is the very same skin disease that we used here. Her hand moved over to the purple one. And this will make every nerve ending in your body feel like they're on fire. She grinned now. Her hand moved to the transparent one. And this one in particular is my favorite. This one is a swarm of nanites that will transfer the new host via fluid, air, contact, and proximity. They infect the host's brain and drive the victim into a mad cannibalistic rage, tearing into their friends and family with abandon. It doesn't kill the host either. It just turns the world around it into an orgy of blood and gore. A transmutable purge syndrome, she laughed. More rather cackled than glee. Me personally, I would have liked to see this one in action. So I'm not really too concerned about whether you accept our generous peace offer or not. Just know that if you turn down our generous offer today, then tomorrow these plagues will find their way to your homeworlds. Ulik stared at the briefcase in horror and realized something that she should have been apparent before the war. These humans were a psychopathic and deranged species. This was why they had rules for war, because without them they would be little to hold themselves back. Those rules were to prevent themselves from letting women like this blood-haired woman from indulging in the primal, violent urges. Ulik had spoken with human POWs before she came here, and there was definitely something off about them. But this demon before her was on a different level and they had invited creatures like her into the most depraved acts by actively trying to commit war crimes. They had brought this on themselves. Ulik needed to end this war before the humans had any more time to invent new tragedies. And, more than that, she needed to put forward a new initiative in the Galaxy Forum on what was and wasn't allowed in wartime. Ambassador Aoife Douglas leaned back into her chair. The negotiations had gone perfectly to plan. The bear-like Umbi ambassador had believed her feigned act of madness, and a good thing too. Aoife had to reach deeper than herself to touch something dark and rotten to pull that off, and it scared her to know that something as vile as that was inside of her. Maybe it wasn't much of an act, 
she thought, as she looked to the bunker window and the world she had burned. This whole plan of the barbaric shock and awe had been hers, after all. After the bomb hit Geneva, she was all that was left to lead the UNE, and she had come up with this unconventional plan to end the war. She diverted every asset they had into this plan. Forty-four trillion dollars worth of effort went into the bioweapons and the fleet perfectly crafted to bring it down on those poor worlds. But it worked. All of that cheap cost of a measly money and her own immortal soul. Everything went to plan, Kaito, her vice-chancellor, said blandly. Yes, better than we hoped. I need a drink. She sighed in defeat. Kaito nodded grimly and reached into the briefcase in the bioweapon she had shown Ulik. Grape or cherry? He asked as he held up the two vials of Kool-Aid. Cherry, she said. Red for all the blood on her hands. Kaito nodded and added a shot of vodka from the nanobot vial. She drank it all in one gulp and shuddered as the bitter taste ran down her throat. All right, now to repeat the act with the Viken. She got up from the table and Kaito followed her out. She idly wondered as she walked out. When I meet God, will he damn me for my crimes or congratulate me? for following his example. She shuddered and blocked out the thought. She still had one more job to do before she went off to meet God. No point in worrying about it now. End of story. 1948. Story number one. Faith, written by I Am The Hype, TFS. When humanity managed to space, they didn't know it, but they had become a target. It came as no surprise that aliens had gods of their own, but they couldn't have known just how aggressive these gods were, especially to newcomers. They were empowered by the collective faith of their worlds and saw new worlds as opportunities to expand that power. Wars were fought over faith, the winners receiving the worship of the now-conquered world. That was how it was since before the mortal could remember, and that was how it would always be. At least, that's what these alien gods thought. But when they mustered the forces of their mortals to move on Earth, what they saw terrified them, as nothing ever had before. For their entire existence, they had been either the sole god or pantheon of their respective worlds, the mortals all collectively believing and worshipping them and them alone. As such, they believed that Earth would be the same and their alliance would crush humanity's faith and then fight amongst themselves to see who would gain this new source of worship. Oh, how wrong they were. Upon entering the solar system, the mortal fleets could only see the worlds laid out before them, but the gods could see so much more. An aura of blinding brilliance encapsulated the Earth, to the point that the gods could not so much as see the planet itself. Uncomfortable with the implications of something powerful enough to block their sight, they moved forward nonetheless, still secure their numbers. As they approached, the light became slightly more bearable and the world came into view. But so did something else. A mighty tree, one so large that the planet was simply nestled in its branches, along with eight other worlds, though the others had a more mystical feel to them, not seeming to be bound to the physical space. Movement caught their eyes and drew their gaze to the bottom of the tree where a fierce dragon and a brood tended to the roots, then to a squirrel that scampered along the tree's length. The gods' hearts began to pound in their ethereal chests, a feeling they hadn't felt in eons. 
They had seen magnifications of faith like this on other worlds. Each had their own realms and themes. But what now worried them was that the brilliant light and the tree gave off different auras. They were not from the same god or pantheon. This meant the world they had set their eyes on was ruled by at least two different faiths, which usually wouldn't be an issue. In fact, the division of faith usually made such battles easier. But they weren't weak. The brilliant light was more intense and contained arguably more power, meaning it contained a higher concentration of faith. But the energy coming from the tree and the realms that sat upon its branches was sharp and fierce. Dangerous. As sound like a soft breath filled the ears of the invading gods, and a curtain of brilliance folded in on itself, condensing over and over until it took on form of a man whose face hurt to look at because of how brightly it shone. He simply stood before his world, staring at the gods while radiating a sense of ultimate calm and peace. He alone would have been enough to give the invaders pause with the amount of faith empowering him. But looking past him made them truly regret coming here. But their vision no longer obscured, not only did they now take note of the massive serpent that encircled the entire planet, but they could feel the eyes of thousands of gods gazing out at them, either from the planet itself or from the ethereal realms around it. Not all of them were equal, not all were powerful, but most were clearly foes. But there was one certainty. No matter their feelings of each other, they would not tolerate the poaching of their faith by outsiders. So stunned were they by the revelation that they forgot to give the order to stop their mortal fleet's advance, and when a certain threshold was crossed, the peaceful man's energy changed, and he gave off a new feeling, that of a sheathed sword drenched in enough blood to drown our entire world. As the alien guards desperately ordered their forces to halt, they noticed the man was no longer alone. Four riders stood at his back, each with a horrifying aura of pain and suffering, except one that simply felt like looking at death itself. But that wasn't all. Hundreds of streaks of light struck out from the world and ethereal realms to land by the bright man's side. Filling the space before Earth were not just other gods, but gods of war. Notable among them were a man with one eye and a spear accompanied by a red-haired warrior with a fearsome hammer at his side. A woman with blue skin and six arms, a robed man with lightning crackling in his eyes, and by his side a man who radiated bloodlust, and an armored woman with an owl on her shoulder. A woman who felt like three beings in one, and even looked to be if one stared long enough. And a lion-headed man who held a bow in his hands. These were but a few members of the army that now stood before the alien. The battle line that the mortals could not see and didn't know to fear. But their gods knew better. They gave the order to retreat, then returned to their homeworlds to leave this place with all haste. The gods themselves didn't retreat. They ran. They fled in terror from the gods of humans, from the mighty faith of these terrifying mortals, from the war they knew they would never be able to win. End of story. Story number two. Weaponizing the Cosmos Itself. Written by Ninja Minion 93. Many species claim to have the most powerful weapons. Unable to be stopped. Unable to be countered. 
and unable to be defended against. The thing is, space itself has had a lot of research and development time, and it had created some truly monstrous things. Things no species would dare to try and study. Things that can tear ships down to their atoms, and things that weapons can't fight. The most tempting to capture was the explosive output of a star all at once in a supernova. It was able to rival the energies of a trillion of plasma weapons and use their energy to make itself stronger before it exploded. Humans looked at that research and development time. Humans had been observing the destructive power of these events long before they were a spacefaring species and attempted to find ways of directing the energy for their own personal use as soon as they noticed them. Once they were able to travel the universe, though, into the areas without stars and planets and where no other species dared to go, they got their answer for how to do it. Humans didn't care where everything said not to go. A live star right as it was dying is extremely understandable, nearly impossible to contain or transport even with the whole civilization using the energy to do it. Humans found a different way, though. Stars didn't always die in a supernova. Almost everyone knew that. The dead husks of black holes, though, were seen as nothing more than trash disposal, though to most. Humans weren't most. Tess started in secret with the top scientists from Terra and its many worlds, in the black void between planets and suns. There were many of the destructive monsters already created and away from any prying eyes. For generations, humans studied the beasts, learning more about them than any sane species could ever hope to know. Humans weren't sane, though. With faster-than-light travel, it was possible to escape a black hole, yes. If you powered up soon enough, what happens if you don't try to escape, though? What if something just goes along for the ride, stealing all the energy the black hole has erased from the universe itself? Humans soon found out that light itself could do this. Shooting photons close enough to the spinning black holes could energize them with much more than they came in with. It was found that reflecting said photons back into the same area just next to it gave them more energy and more each time it passed. Eventually, they found a way out. Humans didn't want a way out. More tests, more material sent to contain the light inside and energize it. Eventually, a similar concept to the quite simple Dyson Sphere was tested fully enveloping the destructive beast with the reflective surface, shooting some photons into it, and then sealing back up. The tests were luckily done with no one important nearby. Humans, not lucky the sphere around it broke when it wasn't at full power. A supernova, a destructive power outshining the brightest of stars and outclassing the mightiest of weapons, humans found a way to do it. Black holes may be dying, but they weren't dead. They had energy to give a lot of it. Humans found a way to use it. An unfavorable trade agreement with a species that many would love to see gone. A perfect testing ground for a new, unstoppable weapon. Stabilized. Check. Photon delivery device. Check. Ship able to transport the gravitational force of the universe with it. Check. Humans were ready. Traveling took longer because of the sensitive cargo. He wasn't suspicious, though. Even the most careful of species. Minimal guns were on the ship. Minimal crew on the ship. Minimal power was in the ship. Nothing set off any red flags. And any scans were swallowed in but to the darkness of the black hole. Humans and everything. In the end, everything was gone. 
the shields on nearby ships acting like tissue paper, the orbital defenses turned to dust, the planet broken and consumed to recharge the weapon. The crew that delivered it barely had time to get out of the blast with their FTL drives before the black hole gave up enough of its own energy, then the containment failed. Humans didn't know that it would be that big. Nothing could survive the destructive power of a dead star brought back to life for a moment of absolute power. The humans had done it. They weaponized one of the most dangerous things in the universe. They turned trash disposal to destruction of the highest order. Humans did it. Humans were fascinated by the universe above their heads for so long. Humans found a way to reach it. Humans found a way to take it. We didn't stop when other species said there was nothing there. We didn't get discouraged by the lack of progress for years. We didn't bow to sanity. The ending result was more than anyone could ask for. A self-replenishing bomb that steals the fuel from what it destroyed. A supernova that tears through any defenses like paper. A weapon they can deny having as a natural phenomenon of the universe. And the achievement of weaponizing the cosmos itself. End of story. 1949. The Human Scam. Written by WS underscore 18. What do you mean my registration is invalid? It's right there on the paperwork. Captain Khan exclaimed. He had more experience than most dealing with newcomers to the galactic stage. But these humans were some of the most dim-witted beings he had ever met. Sir, your ship is not USC-1172 compliant. By United Soul Commonwealth law, that means your registration is not valid and your ship cannot fly within human space. Without the certification, we cannot allow you to enter the system. Captain Khan shifted his ropes, making sure that the Leverian royal crest where the base of his neck was clearly visible, before pointing at the stamp at the bottom of the page. But it says right there that I just passed inspection at Levara three weeks ago. I know that, sir, but they don't test for USC compliance yet. Oh, and let me guess. You're the only ones that do. Unfortunately, yes, we are. Great, Khan thought. I should have known I'd have to bribe myself through customs. Funny how that works out. So how much do I owe you? Oh, that's not what I meant at all. I've already sent the requirements for certification to your ship. If your guys can bring your ship up to standard on their own, it's free. If you'd like some help, you can always hire one of the consultants we have on station. And exactly how long will it take to do that? In case you haven't already noticed, the captain said as he gestured to the royal quest. I'm here on state business with the ambassador, and we are on a very tight schedule. I'm aware of that, sir. You'll be out of here by this time tomorrow at least. And the delay has already been accounted for in the travel plans you received from Earth. It's standard procedure for all new arrivals to human space. Fine! The captain stormed back to his ship, wondering why he was forced to put up with these antics from the newcomers. When he arrived, he went straight to the Manic's office in engineering. Manic had been the crew's IT specialist since before Khan had even been licensed to fly the ship. So, if anyone could meet whatever bullcrap requirements the humans had sent, it would be him. Hello, Captain. Been browsing the wrong Galnet sites again. Not this time, Manic. These jerks want us to pay a bribe to get some kind of certification to cross the border, but they gave us an out if we can get the spec on our own. You think you can take care of this? He asked as he pulled up the list on his tablet. No, I don't know. What do they want? 
Together they started going over the list. It was nearly 20 pages of heavily bloated legalese jargon, with a little bit of technical specs mixed in here and there. The first few pages would be easy to take care of, although neither Khan nor Manic could understand the point of any of it. Who cares if the navigator spent his free time online when he wasn't busy potting a jump? It's not like he had to do anything once they were in the hyperplanes anyway. So we just unplug a few wires here and there and we'll have a third of the list wiped out. Yes, but the crew won't be happy once they realize they're what we unplugged. Oh well, we can always plug it back in as soon as they give us the certification. True. Each item on the list was more ridiculous than the last, and by the end of it the humans were asking them to rewrite significant portions of the ship's software from scratch to prevent scenarios that were just outright impossible. They couldn't possibly believe that the hyperdrive could receive any inputs from anywhere other than a nav console, right? And that was one of the less absurd changes humans were demanding. Can we take care of this by tomorrow morning? The first ten pages or so, yes. Uh, should be pretty easy, but after that, though, uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I didn't think anyone outside of the shipyards has ever even seen that code before. And even if I somehow had access to it, that's still at least a few months worth of work. Crap! You're telling me that we have to hire their consultants? I guess so. Reluctantly, Khan reached for his communicator, picked a number from the list included with the specifications, and made a call. The next morning, a small team of humans arrived at the docking tube. The one at the front stepped forward and addressed him. Hello, Captain Khan. I'm Anne Jacobson from Seoul Space Consulting. I understand that you need help obtaining your USC-1172 certification? Yes, that is correct. Okay, my team and I already have the necessary software, so I'll just be a matter of updating all the computers you have on board. Shouldn't take more than a few minutes per computer. Khan wanted to call the humans out in the scam that they were running, but he knew better than to insult the only people who could help him get the certification he needed. Great, I'll let my tech guy Manic show you where to go. For the next hour or so, Manic led the humans around while Khan tagged along behind him. He didn't know what their update was really doing, but the ship's antivirus software didn't raise any red flags, so it probably wasn't doing anything too bad. What's the update for anyway? He decided to ask once the lost computer on the ship was ready to go. I'm not allowed to share the details yet, said Anne, but last year we discovered a major security flaw built into the operating system that comes with every single ship designed by Corex Industries. We're working with them to get an update rolled out, but they were moving too slowly for our liking. We were taking matters into our own hands. Corex Industries. They've built just about every single ship ever sold on the side of the Stingray Nebula, since the humans were still riding around in the backs of animals. Do they really think they know better? Well, uh, thanks for fixing that for us. How much do I owe you? A hundred credits. Keep the receipt, though. I have a feeling Corex might have to pay you back once this is all sorted out. Once Kong had his certification, he set off towards Earth, already planning to the conversation that he would have with their leader once he got there. Five months later, Kong's communicator bleeped, and he pressed the button to accept the call. Hello, is this Captain Kong of the Laverin Royal Navy? Yeah, that's me. This is Gahern from Corex Industries. I'm calling you to inform you that your ship has been recalled for a major software security issue. Any Corex certified shipyard will be able to make the necessary changes free of charge. And beginning next year, a new version of the software will be required in order to pass inspection. All right. Thanks for letting me know. With that, Khan ended the call, 
Luckily, he was already docked at the Royal Navy shipyards for some routine maintenance. He made a quick stop at the front desk and put in a request for the update before heading out into the station to enjoy his day off. The next morning, he went back to the front desk to check the ship out of the shop. He scanned the invoice, making sure everything looked right to him. He noticed something missing. Hey, I don't see an update I asked for yesterday mentioned anywhere on here. When I plugged into the computer, it told me that you're already running the new version. We didn't have to change anything, but you're good to go. How can I be on the new version already when it just came out yesterday? Dunno, maybe your tech guy signed you up for some kind of beta program? The timestamp on those files were about five months ago. Five months ago, you say? Does this update have anything to do with the certifications the humans have been pushing on everyone who crosses their borders? I'm not familiar with anything like that. Well, that's the last time anyone touched these systems. They said something about a top-secret security issue and wouldn't let me in unless they updated my ship first. Huh. I heard they reported the bug in the first place, but I had no idea they did anything to help fix it. Well, that's the only place it could have come from, so I guess they weren't scamming me after all. Do you know what the update is supposed to fix? No. They're keeping it really quiet about it. Seems like the kind of thing they don't want anyone to know about until after it's fixed and everybody on the new version of the software. Alright, uh, thanks anyway. Hunt said, as he paid his bill and started preparing the ship for takeoff. As the ship set off for its next diplomatic journey, Khan found a few cybersecurity books written by humans to pass the time during the flight. He doubted he would understand most of the technical details, but he hoped that he would at least be able to understand enough to figure out what this mysterious security issue had been. And if not, he could always share books with Manic and see if he had any ideas. End of story. Story number two. Raw Magic, written by Ozzy Endeavor. Cubans are not special. They just got stupidly lucky. No, no. Listen. Everyone thinks humans are oh so wonderful because their bodies have the magic capacity of a fucking star. But just look at how oblivious they are to it. It's not like they practice magic hell. They don't even think it's real. The human home planet Earth. Stupid name, by the way. It is just perfect. But that is not a compliment. It has the perfect gravity, plenty of water, solid, liquid, and gaseous. And an ozone layer, a large moon, predictable seasons, a stable axial tilt, a calm star, even a fucking gas giant for a bodyguard. Earth is perfect. And so the lucky bastards have never had to use magic like the rest of us. Our planet never had an ozone layer, so we had to learn shielding magic. The poor Jacqueline, they were tidally locked, so they were forced to develop both fire and ice magic. Don't even get me started on the Quayye. Poor bastards didn't have any magic left after the supernova catastrophe. Humans haven't learned any magic, and because of that they have never used it. Even if they aren't using it, they are still generating it, just like all sapiens. The magic just has to build up over the generations, and as the population exceeds an ungodly 8 billion, the magic has utterly engulfed the soul system, leaving a trail of raw magic in its wake as it soars across the galaxy. And do you know what's even worse? The dumb facts in the government want to contact them. How stupid can you be? Who knows what will happen if anyone gets close enough to one of them? That much raw magic concentrated yet unrefined. They might as well be living EMPs. End of magic pulse. In case you didn't know. 
There is a reason that every star system orbiting behind Sol is sterile. Their raw magic inside of and surrounding humans is just too much for the universe to handle. It's like a supernova. Every single second, if we contact them, we're doomed. No other way around it. Not even our shielding magic could stop them. Nothing can't compare to the raw magic lying dormant in their souls, just waiting to be unreleased on us all. After I finish my speech, I look up at my granddaughter, expecting to see a look of agreement, maybe a touch of fear. Instead, I find tired eyes staring back at me. Sure, Grandpa. Let's get you back to bed. End of story. 1950. Story number one. The Rule of Cool, written by Foxcorp. It doesn't matter what a human is doing. Rest assured, they'll look good while doing it. Ambassador Diggs, Chief Diplomat of the Galactic Union. Human first contact lives rent-free in the minds of all who witnessed it. When we touched down on Earth, we expected the nervous and informal scramble to communicate being of young species. Humans, however, were different. The first sound they greeted my landing craft was the most peculiar. A loud word that got louder and louder as the seconds went by. I scanned the ground for whatever monstrous behemoth of a vehicle could make such a noise to no avail. My avian aide, with his tunneling vision, saw it first, pointing to the sky and exclaiming, Look! Humans called it a helicopter, or rather, helicopters. A fleet of four were rocketing to my position. Three brutalist and jagged boxes with rotors formed a V-shape, with the fourth following close behind. This fourth helicopter, however, was of a completely different design. It had sleek edges that seamlessly flowed and almost melted together in an incredibly organic design. The craft had a shape of a stretched teardrop, with a tail, fin, and rotor extending from the rear. The contrast between the brutal and jagged edges of the lead craft and the sleek, growing nature of the rear sent me into a momentary sense of awe. What came next was even more impressive. The helicopters to the right and left veered suddenly to their respective sides, flanking my humble shuttle with menacing stares. The central beast rose to a speed and nimbleness unbecoming of a chip in size, also bearing down on me with an immense intimidation factor. The sleek helicopter floated down from the sky, presenting its sight to my fellow diplomats and I with an immeasurable grace and elegance. A panel on the helicopter's side descended to act as a ramp, and three humans soon spilled out from the craft's spacious interior. Two large bipeds in black suits flanked the smaller human in a white suit as they emerged. The larger humans walked with purpose, their eyes hidden by black shades, but with the intent shone through all the same. We protect the one in the middle. The central human walked in a much less rigid manner. Their white teeth beamed at us with a smile and they walked with radiant confidence. The tables were turned entirely. Instead of the aliens gawking at our mere presence, we were gawking at the humans. The humans knew that we were coming for weeks. To our great horror, it was later revealed that humanity's entire arsenal of orbital weapons had targeted us since we passed Titan, the moon of a particularly stunning gas giant. But that's a story for another time. The cunning apes had deduced that we posed little threat and decided to make first contact on their own terms, on the surface of Earth. 
Nothing has truly changed since those days. In every war, news report, conference, strategic meeting, company discussion, you name it, if a human showed up, you'd know. The human military was the best dressed, with the most intimidating ships, and the biggest budget of any new species ever seen. After only 50 years, they added the illustrious title of best equipped to the list as well. Their guns didn't just look cool, they performed well. From the death-filled system of Beetlejuice to the box offices on Camdeshop, the human military made a name for itself. Human diplomats were more of the same, slick and effective. They showed up in the fanciest vehicles, held the best venues, talked big and performed bigger. It is common knowledge that a good enough human diplomat can convince any nation to sell their soul. Luckily for us, these diplomats are well vetted and have an upstanding moral foundation. In the rare cases where humanity decides to expand aggressively, their usually upstanding morals could be twisted into a two-tongued menace, winning wars without a single shot. Don't even get me started on the proper politicians. They could and do stab people in the back constantly. Their posturing and foundations are so strong that all of their blood ends up on the victim's hands. If a human is in a position of power goes mad, I still shudder at the thought of the last time the galaxy was plagued by such an unhinged being of pure chaos. Even to this day, that man-man still has some support, mostly due to how damn cool he and his military looked while doing it. Luckily, for the rest of the galaxy, an opposing factions of humans was able to remove him from power and stopped him from realizing his vision of the first triumvirate of the stars. He was planning to rule the galaxy with two other individuals, which both happened to be robotic vessels controlled by, you guessed it, himself. The name was cool, though. The cherry on the top was the lawyers. Oh, the lawyers. They could walk into a courtroom and simply declare their client innocent with such confidence and style that they could make someone get away with murder. This happened several times before nearly all prosecutors were also replaced by humans. In a court of law, the humans' unmeasurable levels of confidence and desire to win are amplified tenfold. Only the worst of the worst can't be saved by humans. But on occasion, they are actually saved and it takes a human to take them down when they inevitably end back up in court. Out of all the human sayings I've overheard, I like this one the most. We might be terrible at it, but at least we look good doing it. End of story. Story number two. Humans are using FTL wrong. Written by Left Jade. As many in the Galactic Federation have recently learned, humans have in fact been in possession of FTL technology for at least 180 years. The message radiated through the large spherical amphitheater, filled with the representatives from over 1,100 sentient species, all members of the Milky Way galaxy. At the center of the theater, floating several feet above the suspended podium, was the voice of the Federation. The voice was a large, translucent being with an innumerable tentacle that pulsated in a dazzling show of colors. Colors which their podium translated into the galactic common for all in attendance. Nonsense, objected a mantid-like species, their station moving towards the center of the amphitheater. If the humans had achieved FTL that long ago, they would have expanded well beyond their local star cluster, and yet they haven't even colonized a single star beyond their home system. 
Perhaps they failed to realize the potential of FTL, suggested the representative of the Ankorashian, a bipedal species who at a distance one could mistake for a human, if not for their large eyes, moist skin. What other use could one have for FTL than travel between stars? demanded Steed. Leave it to the warm blood to be used one of the most crowning achievements in sentience. On the contrary, the voice had directed. Humans have been using FTL in a manner so novel, many of the Federation's top scientists believe their human constituents were joking. You see, for all the dangers humans' cradle world may pose to the members of our Federation, from their perspective, there were no viable planets they felt could be easily colonized. So when humans discovered FTL, they didn't see it as a means of travel to distant stars. Thus, instead of installing FTL on spaceships, they created vessels such as this. An image of a large, ovular-shaped craft appeared on the screen, and the voice continued. The humans called this vessel an anti-grav retrocausality, or an arc, for short. The earliest records we found from their digital archives suggest the Ark's original name was Tic Tac, but these records are so significantly older than their claim of 180 years. By our estimations, these ships can be seen from the planet's surface as far back as 800 human years. This is outrageous, the manted roar. With that much time, humans could have colonized hundreds of systems. Clearly, they are using FTL wrong. Please allow me to conclude the briefing, Supreme Admiral Zarix. I will then open the floor to any and all questions, the voice insisted. After a brief pause to allow for the murmurings from around the amphitheater to die down, the voice continued. As it turns out, it's practically impossible for us, or even humans for that matter, to know how long they've had access to FDL. As the humans who has been members of the Grand Federation for nearly 2,000 years now did not invent their form of FTL. The technology was gifted to them by other humans. Humans not from their cradle world, but a cradle world from a different universe entirely. A parallel universe as the humans call it. Thus, humans do not recognize FTL as such. They call these crafts time machines. Which is why it has only recently come to our attention that they are in possession of FTL. Incidentally, this is why humans have never left their home system. They've instead chosen to colonize and uplift every iteration of their cradle world across every parallel universe, which, if their reports are to be believed, are as numerous as the stars in the known universe. This time, the voice's pause was not met by an uproar but a deafening silence. It was cleared to all in that moment, to the voice, to all the members of the Federations. Humans were in fact the only ones using FTL the right way. End of story. 1951. The Good Old War Crime Stick, written by the Dragon Prince. Tarashk looked at the human in disbelief. Yara, you're actually coming to help us. Of course. That's what allies do. All of the other allies of the Unified Clerk and Administration had ignored their request for help and abandoned its largest colony, Belan Ask II, to its inevitable doom. This 
was understandable. Gutha Nklitki, Blinden Nask too, was considered a lost cause. The hyper-mechanized insect old race didn't often stray outside its borders. But when it did, it always went badly for whomever was in their sights. The Gthnk-Liki had one of, if not the largest and most capable militaries in the galaxy. Their navy was capable of waging war on multiple fronts against multiple star nations, and their army foot soldiers put other races' elite soldiers to shame. It was lucky for the galaxy that, most of the time, the Gthnk-Liki were content to stay in their quadrant of space. However, where the Gthnk-Liki did venture out into the wider galaxy, whether to address the perceived slight, acquire resources, or simply keep their siding limbs sharp. All other nations steered incredibly clear of the conflict, hence to Larash's surprise to the offer for help. But he'd be a fool not to take up the offer to help. Perhaps the two nations together, with a healthy dose of luck, could somehow evacuate what civilians remained of Blenask too. A few hours later, in a secure station deep in Klenurk territory, Ashrank stood above the projector display of Blanask's system across from two human representatives. Okay, I'm afraid we had to admit that we don't have a lot of actionable intel on the Geraint's Litki. Keith, uh, what do you see this have? Keith Hellingstead, Grand Admiral of the Call System of Earth 7 Fleet, stared at his counterpart. Ashrank got the distinct feeling that Keith didn't like the other human nickname for the CSE. I am not surprised to hear that your empire has produced nothing useful. Tell me, why is there any here again? Now it was Halard Malpitan's turn to bristle. Commander of the Empire of New Earth's Fourth Fleet, he had arrived just minutes after Keith. The unified Klenurk administration may have brokered the peace that ended war between these two human empires, but Ash Rank sensed that those efforts might be undone if he didn't get focus back on the reason both men were here in the first place. Gentlemen, thank you for both coming to our aid. I believe I can provide all the data you'll need for strategic coordination. Now, if you will take a look at the projector, The Gethentlichki had deployed to the Blenask system in an unconventional formation and with extreme numbers. Normally, when attempting to take the system, the attacker would bring a single formation of three to five fleets and a few armies and troop carriers. After sweeping defenses, one fleet would remain over the target world with troop carriers, while the remaining fleets would box in the hyperplane to intercept reinforcements. This time, the Gethentlichki had deployed two full warhosts to a modestly sized Blodask system. A full seven fleets boxed in the hyperplane exit, four facing inwards, three covering the rear, and another three fleets sat in the troop carriers. Clearly, a reaction to advent of jump drive technology, which the ENE had so devastatingly used against the Voluntary Empire five years prior. The Gethentlichki ground invasion force was significantly more normal fare. Three armies, three quarters of a million soldiers total. One army was more than enough to take the world within the year. So Ashrank predicted the Blanask II would fall within the next 90 cycles. To oppose them, Ashrank had four Klenurk fleets, all hyperpain bound, and two human fleets of unknown capability, but apparently both jump drive capable, nowhere near enough firepower. The Eni had also had an attachment of 100,000 drop troops. Hallard called them stormtroopers and pioneers interchangeably. And the CSE fleet had an attachment of 250,000 devil dogs, whatever that meant. Ashrank had seen the human dog before, 
Fluffy and a loud little thing in the ambassador's purse. So, uh, he wasn't filled with confidence. Despite the bleak outlook, the two humans absorbed the information with good humor. Keith looked up from the data state and asked, So, Ashnak, why exactly is the Gurinthalichki army so feared? I've only heard disjointed stories about their capabilities, and I'd like to have a better picture on what I'm sending my boys up against. Ashrang sighed. Clearly, this human was underestimating the enemy and overestimating his capabilities. Humans were robust, sure, but too slow. Far too slow. Computer, access the file on the Githarinlinchki warriors. Classification authorization alpha, cross-check, voice print. The computer chimed, voice print confirmed, all data available. The distinctive form of the Gurinthalichki warrior replaced the Blanark system on the hollow display. Looks a bit like a giant forearm praying mantis, doesn't it? Allard interjected. The computer continued. Raised Githinklitschki. Classification warrior class. Githinklitschki evolved in an oxygen gens world, allowing the development of large exoskeleton invertebrates without a dedicated respiratory system. Upon colonizing other worlds, the Gurinthalichki found that the oxygen density outside their home system was insufficient. This pushed them to develop intense cybernetics to mimic organic respiratory activity. Current intel suggests that the Gurinthalichki warriors are as much as 60% cybernetic. These cybernetics mesh well with the dispersed nervous system and fast-twitch muscles, allowing them a great range of incredibly quick movements. Their carapaces are also enhanced with laser-resistant compounds, making them practically impervious to squad-portable laser weapons. The average Gathantilichki warrior carries a plasma-resistant shield and monomolecular blade in its primary arms, while its secondary arms carry a small ballistic shield and plasma blaster. Their enhanced reflexes and extreme speed allow them to intercept both plasma bolts and conventional ballistic weapons. No race to date has been able to best them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. They are, effectively, impervious to any at all small arms. Keith crossed his arms, clearly toying with options in his mind. Hallard turned to Ashnak. Have you tried rapid-fire ballistic weapons like, uh, machine guns? Others have. They're quick enough to notice changes in the chain of spray, so only controlled sprays of even have a chance of catching them. It's down to luck. Uncontrolled sprays? Keith asked, a spark of hope in his eyes. Yes, but like I said, that's up to dumb luck. I think we can do it. We'll have to break out an ancient weapon, but the devil dogs can do it. Hallard, do you think the e and &E Fourth can pull their orbiting fleets out of position? We can buy you about two hours. I only need to get my drop pods out. Thirty minutes in and out. We'll send down some stable subdimension munition jumps, sir. Should buy the world enough time for reinforcements to get there. Ash rang startled. Wait, reinforcements? The humans laughed in sync. Disturbing. What, did you think that we were all the help you got? Hallard asked. There is a combined human force mustering in the independent colonies between CSC and E&E. &E. We'll have full 12 human fleets here inside of six months. That's about 180 of your cycles. We'll be here to make sure the world holds until then. Dashrang felt faint. Maybe we can actually stand a chance if we can somehow double the life expectancy of Blanosk too. Okay, what do you need from me? The next day, on Blanosk too, outside of Critchmelt, the planet's larger city. Mal Long stared onto the orange sky with bleary eyes. He thought he saw flashes of space combat, but there was no way to be certain. He wasn't sure the last time he saw a clear sky. He also wasn't sure the last time he'd slept more than a few hours, sometimes before the Gathantlilichki invasion. 
So, at least ten cycles ago. Wait, they only invaded ten cycles ago. <sighs> at this rate, it'll be over soon. Morlonk blinked as he saw streaks start to appear in the morning sky. Meteors? No. Too bright. Drop ships! Morlunk grabbed his hand blaster and ran for his post, primary gunner of the sector's anti-air battery. And as he ran, sirens began their shrieking whines, and other soldiers started towards their posts. He hopped into the seat, booted up the targeting system, and brought his guns to bear on the lead ship. Just a few more sighs, and it would be in range. No! Molang pulled the trigger. But before any plasma flew clear, his trigger went dead. His target had flashed a warning. Friendly ship detected encrypted and credentials match. The battery's computer also sang out in the soothing way. Do not fire. Friendly craft detected. Do not fire. Friendly craft detected. Do not fire. Merlonk pulled the targeter off of his incoming dropship, ending the friendly fire alarm. Was it a trick of the Githenthrilichki? Were we actually getting reinforcements? Only one way to find out. Merlonk stepped out of his post, staring at the incoming streaks with dozens of his fellow soldiers. For the first time in what felt like forever, they dared to hope. The waiting stretched into minutes as the dropships got closer. Morlunk's heart sank as he realized they weren't the right ships, so he couldn't hear the distinctive whine of the Chilurn dropships. But they clearly weren't Gurinthalichki either. Who was coming? After what seemed like an eternity of waiting and guessing, the dropship no. Drop pod slammed into the ground. The doors flew open, propelled by explosive bolts. Dark bipedal shapes banned out, guns raised. They relaxed slightly as they saw the distinctive forms of the Klinurk soldiers. Colonel Robert Gilder, 35th Regiment, uh, Core Systems of Earth Marines, the human saluted. He was the only soldier not carrying a long gun, just a blaster on his hip. We are the reinforcements. Who is the commanding officer here? Merlong watched as the human walked off with his commander. He didn't know how to feel. He was excited to be reinforced, of course, but what good would that do? How useful were these humans? They had brought ballistic weapons, outdated ones it looked like. Perhaps they were penal regiment, sent to die. He trudged over to the closest human. The soldier was digging a hole behind an energy shield. His gun lay on the ground beside him. What are you doing? Digging a foxhole. Can't you see that? You're digging a hole behind an energy shield. What good is that? Shields are nice, but earth between you and the foe is better. Says who? Experience. Molang saw the humans up and down the shield line also digging holes. I'm Molang, gunnery officer second class. Molang shook his primary appendage in the form of greeting. Brandon Waif, Corporal Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 45th CSE Marines. He barely looked up from his digging. I don't know what that means. It means I'm here to kill the bad guys. But that old thing, Molang gestured vaguely at the gun on the ground. This old thing has probably killed more people than your fancy energy weapons, I bet. Lieutenant Clear says that one side in Earth's First World War tried to ban this kind of gun. Called it a war crime stick. I, uh, sure? I hope it works out for you. Molang didn't know how to handle this human, so he beat a hasty retreat to his post. Barely an hour later, systems detected a masker and Thalichki APCs approaching. Tank battles were not the Gurinthalichki strong suit. ABCs got the warriors in close, where they could close in for the kill. Their main weapon was a laser, useless against enemy armor, but extremely effective against the energy shields. The average Gurinthalichki warrior was more than a match for enemy armor, so committing tanks to this fight would just be a waste of lives. 
Better to drop the shields and try blast the APCs before they closed. The sector CO highlighted the Gleed Garanthalichki APC for targeting. Tough vehicles, but maybe concentrated fire would bring it down. Molonk ensured his anti-air battery was on ground fire mode and opened fire. The Githanthalichki APCs were practically on the front line now. Molonk counted five wrecked APCs, up to 60 dead Garanthalichki warriors. A noble effort. Then again, the attack on this sector consisted of over 300 APCs. Well, over 3,500 Githanthalichki were about to flood into the sector. Facing them, 1,271 Klinurk planetary defense forces, far from elite soldiers, and a regiment of human marines. Merlong had been told they numbered about 2,000. Well, at least death by monomolecular blade is supposed to be pretty quick. The enemy was too close for friendly fire lines to engage with heavy artillery now. Molonk powered down his anti-air battery and set the dead man's switch. If he died or flicked the switch, the battery would self-destruct. That way, at least the garrison Lichki wouldn't be able to use it. Maybe, and might even take one or two of them with it. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Go into the afterlife and get to claim one or two of the galaxy's best warriors. Might even be enough to make his father proud of his line of work. Molonk double-checks the systems on his blaster. The plasma weapon wasn't likely to be extremely useful, but if he caught a Githran Delichki off guard, maybe he could get a killing shot in. Definitely more useful than whatever the humans were using. Molonk looked over to the humans, hiding in their holes. No, not holes. A whole trench system. That's actually pretty impressive. It looked like an officer was addressing the troops. Molonk strained to hear what was being said. What makes the grass grow? The human yelled. What makes the grass grow? Kill! 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 His troops shouted back. Oh. Okay. The first rank Garethrilski IPC started to disgorge their contents. Looked like a few hundred warriors with the first wave. Devil dogs! New humans popped up their upper halves over the trenches, taking aim at their guns. As their Garethrilski warriors closed, Merlong waited for them to fire. Why weren't they firing? They wasting precious time. Merlong held his breath. These poor humans were going to get slaughtered. Why weren't they firing? Just as Gorinthalichki was about to reach melee range, the humans began firing. To Merlong's surprise, there was no pinging shriek of deflecting or blocked bullets. Instead, he watched in shock as the Gorinthalichki appeared to explode in showers of chitinous bits. Barely any of them actually made it into the trenches. When they did, the marines pulled back and continued to hammer them with the primitive-looking weapons. Just what the hell were these humans using? Combat lasted barely ten minutes before the Gurinthalichki retreated. Dozens of APCs littered the battlefield, unharmed, but with no one to pilot them. At the end of the day, the Gurinthalichki dead count was over 1,800, over half of the attacking force. A few dozen humans had been killed, and another few hundred had been wounded. Most of them were missing limbs for near misses by monomolecular swords. Merlonk didn't think that he could survive a hit like that. No Klinurk had been killed. Merlonk hunted down Corporal Waif. The cranky man was leaning against a rock, breathing through some sort of lit tube. What the hell kind of weapon are you using? I thought nothing could get through the Gerontalichki shield. This uh, is a 12-gauge shotgun, loaded with double art buck. Command says they can deflect bullets, but uh, Batty here puts out nine pellets at once. Can, uh... Can I have one? Sure. We bought another three million down with us. I'll show you to the supply dump. End of story. 1952.
Story number one, The Greatest Lie Ever Told, written by Objective Campaign 82. The greatest lie ever told to the galaxy was when the humans said that they were nothing special. On the surface, it seemed a very valid claim. They were born under an entirely normal yellow sun, and their world's gravity was as close to a habitable average as one could get. On their home world of Earth, they were mid-tier in terms of the food chain, not the strongest, or the fastest, or the most durable, but capable of coming together and accomplishing some semblance of civilization. They, like many other species, were culturally and ethnically divided, and had the typical tendency to war amongst themselves. They had art, music, and literature, and like many other species, the value and appeal of such things were only known to them and their particular sense of aesthetics. They are friendly enough, odd to understand at times, and occasionally ventured across the romantic barrier of species to find comfort in the arms or other such limbs of another species. Some have claimed them to be the best kind of people to have as friends, but this is just a case of personal prejudice. Of course, your friend is the best friend a sapient could have. Their arrival onto the galactic stage changed the course of several empires as they began to assert themselves, but nothing will changing. They showed themselves to be a difficult foe to conquer, skilled diplomats that could shift the balance of power, and industrious workers who could change the course of the galactic market. But these are all the normal consequences of a new emergent empire, and while their introduction of cheap steel had a significant impact on galactic economics, it wasn't the revolution that was chief antimatter. All things considered, their claims of being nothing special seemed to ring true. But if that's the case, then why do great things always seem to occur when there was a human involved? Over the last few years, the media has been abuzz with incredible and almost fantastic stories of great heroism, and at the center of all of them was a human. Take the case of the fire of the Titanium Street Apartments. An electrical short and a ready supply of flammable paper quickly turned the whole brick building into an inferno. Residents rushed out to escape the flames, and local emergency services were called, and in all the chaos, a nest of arachnids hatchlings were left behind. Their mother cried when she arrived to find her offspring was still inside the building, but the fires were too intense for anyone to get through. All seemed lost. And then, without warning, a human bystander, who was not a resident, rushed past the emergency services and into the burning building without a second thought. Then, minutes later, the human male emerged with eight pterodactyl hatchlings gripping his body like a life raft. He pried the hatchlings off of his body and passed them to their mother before finding a bench to collapse on. He had inhaled near-fatal amounts of carbon dioxide and only stayed awake from willpower alone. The human instinct to defend their young is well known, and it has been observed that the instinct will often cross the species barrier for a species they consider cute. But according to the sensibilities of one human analyst, arachnids are a cross of spiders and prey mantis juiced up on nightmare fuel. Very much not cute. There is also the case of Boros Star, where a human soldier held the line so that his non-human comrades could safely fall back. Posthumously, earning the Balvexian Medal of Honor, the only non-human Balvexian to ever do so. On the same front of the Balvexian Senate War, a human medic was reported to save over 20 lives in the middle of an active combat zone. 
Only stopping when a stray bullet passed through his chest. The Balvexen, the medic, was resuscitating. Said the medic didn't stop, even when their lines were overrun, and his life was in danger. On another front of the Balvexen Senate war, a human major made a daring attack by intentionally crashing his own dropship into the Senate headquarters, just after ordering his men out of the ship with a parachute packs. While the Senate were reading from the attack on their headquarters, the human platoon safely landed around the enemy base and took it within the day, effectively destabilizing the enemy command and securing a human victory on Ventus. Further into Senate territory, a human smuggler ship infiltrated a critical mining facility, freed its captive workforce, and safely returned all 1,200 slaves to their families. On the halls of the Galactic Forum, human diplomats and ambassadors began to paint the nature of the Senate Empire as an affront to all sapient species, even swaying the other slaver empires who had previously been part of the Senate bloc. The shift in popular opinion swayed the greater galaxy and ultimately allowed for sweeping sanctions that crippled the Senate economy. Wherever you hear stories of greatness these days, you will also find humans standing off to the side benignly pretending that they are nothing special. But it has become very apparent that there is more than meets the eye to these humans. Because if they're nothing special, then what does that make the rest of us? End of story. Story number two, The Height of Arrogance, written by P4-34-M0. To enter jump space, one must prove that it exists, and in doing so, it'll reach out and prove that you exist. Unknown jump space technician. Lano Mur had been a jump space navigator for all of his life, just like his father and his father before him, just like every being of his species, renowned navigators all of the thousand generations. Heavyset, a large creature of notable mass and cross-section, he was perfectly in tune with his ship, his crew. He knew every inch of the ship from top to bottom, every bolt and nut and sheets of plates, accounted for, memorized, in his superior memory. It had to be. The alternative was smearing himself and his passengers across light years of space as an atomically thin paste of wasted talent. Because from the moment of his drive rings began spooling to the moment he dropped back out. Because as soon as they began untangling the former as old as time, he would be fighting for his life and the lives of every sentient being in cold storage below him. It would not be a battle of strength, no. It would be cold, calculated math. The calculus of existence. To prove jump space existed was to prove you were inside it, and to prove that you were inside it required proof that you existed to be inside it. Success would mean safe passage. Failure would erase the pilot from existence in an instant, leaving the ship to fall against the boundary planes at thousands of light years per second. The result would be visible for years to come. All system screen, equations prepped. Go on your mark. Lanomer didn't like her, his new human co-pilot. He didn't like humans as a whole, pretentious upstarts that they were. A thousand generations spent sculpting the best jump space pilots the galaxy had ever seen, and they were upset by a fraction of the time by a species who couldn't even remember what they'd had for breakfast. But they were mandatory on every jump ship now, as a backup failsafe, if not full pilots. It wasn't that she irked him in any way. It wasn't personal. But as she handed him his equations, he couldn't help but feel that little twinge of annoyance. 
His equations were thick, voluptuous, rich with data and calculations and merits. Weight-mass ratio, gravity-displacement mapping, the weight of his hair, and the amount of dead skin he lost every day, all listed, categorized, memorized in sheets of hard-copied paper, which proved, without a doubt, that he existed. The stack reached his elbow, even reclined in his command couch. The human, on the other hand, had a single sheet of paper, just one. It took less than a breath to read it off. She had explained it to him once, back when her single sheet of paper was unbearable and not just annoying, what it meant. She did not use math to prove she existed, because merely by existing she deserved to keep existing. So great was her arrogance, her trust in herself and her existence, that in trusting herself she made herself exist. It was cyclical. It made no sense. But it worked for her, and it worked for millions, billions of other humans, all of them coming, going, laughing, hating, fully uncaring that their existence was based only on a lie of themselves, on the arrogance to assume that by credit of existing in that single moment that they would exist in the next, and the next, forever. It was so simple, it was the height of arrogance. I think, therefore, I am. End of story. 1953 Story number one. Little Ships, written by Squirrel Bay. The refugees below were panicky. From his balcony atop the spaceport, Oz could see that the throng of life forms in the streets below was becoming dangerous. Thousands of his people were being crushed up against each other by the sheer volume of people in the crowd. There were other species too, creatures of every shape and size, and shouts for space pierced the air in a dozen languages. Those at the back, clinging to any shred of hope for salvation, jumped forwards blindly. Fear and desperation rending them oblivious to the crush ahead. Their struggle was all for nothing. No rescue awaited them inside the spaceport. The last ship off planet was barely more than a twinkle in the sky. A beautiful Federation cruiser, capable of carrying 10,000 life forms, it had abandoned them, taking 200 beings. It was indistinguishable from the stars now, fleeing the doomed planet and leaving the refugees below to the gruesome fate. Death awaited the lucky ones. Slavery was the best the others could hope for. The balcony shook as a nearby explosion rattled the spaceport to its foundations. Oz clung to the railing and waited for the shaking to subside. The enemy were coming closer now, the crackle of laser fire in the distance growing louder by the second, almost drowned out by the screams of the crowd below. We brought this upon ourselves, he thought. He had been exhilarating for his people to discover that they were not alone in the galaxy. There was a whole community of species out there. The Federation. They made it, he species, such grandiose promises, telling them that they would make them rich, advanced, and powerful. And so, they'd open their borders to them, grasping hungrily at the technology, information, and power that they had been offered. They'd drawn too much attention to themselves. Eventually, the enemy noticed them too. The transponder in his pocket flashed and peeped, ignored. He watched on in horror as the closest enemy gunship, drifting lazily above the city, rained destruction on the buildings below. An explosion rocked the side of the distant skyscraper, toppling it like a tree blasting chunks of debris into the street. The ship was heading directly towards him, carving a path of ruin in its wake. 
The worst part was that they had known this was coming. They could have been saved. He had sent dozens of distress signals to every government that had a representative on his planet. Every single one had abandoned them to their fate. Cowards. All of them. Too afraid of the invaders. Too worried they would draw their ire to their own borders. You must surrender at once. Do not contact us again. You endanger our people. We're sorry. Only the humans and other relatively young species had responded positively. We will do our best. But their systems were too distant to offer any aid. Their response had just felt like another nail in the coffin to borrow one of their idioms. Empty words meant to give hope to the condemned planet. As he continued to watch the crowds push and sway below, Oswald was surprised to find that he did not feel despair or sadness, only overwhelming anger. Anger that the Federation, with all its promises of wealth and power, had done nothing to help them. Anger that his people had been abandoned by the other governments at the first sight of danger. Anger that he had been left to die whilst the wealthy and powerful fled on their yachts to live another day. The gunship was closer now. There was a collective groan of terror from the street below as some of the refugees spotted the approaching ship. Row upon row of weapons peeked out from the sleek hull like oars in an ancient boat each one firing haphazardly into the defenseless buildings. In minutes, he would be here, and Oswald would be put out of his misery. The transponder was still beeping incessantly in his pocket. Fresh anger swelled within him. It was probably another refusal to help from some corrupt government. Expecting another dismissal, he reached into his pocket and switched it off. He glanced at the message disdainfully, and his eyes widened in surprise. It was Earth! Rescue fleet incoming! Prepare for evacuation! Empty words, surely. It was too little, too late. The enemy had descended on the city like insects to a carcass. What little resistance they had been able to raise had been swept aside with a brutal efficiency. The building shook again, and he watched numbly as his home was destroyed, backlit by burning buildings. The ship was almost directly above him now. He watched as his guns turned to face him. Oz closed his eye. He was bitter, angry, and resentful. But he had accepted his death. And yet, for some reason, nothing happened. He opened his eye to find weapons swirling to face upwards, the gunship rising quickly into the sky. Where is it going? he thought. He swept his gaze further up. And what he saw, approaching from the sky, took his breath away. Above, as though the stars themselves were descending, the light of a thousand ships filled the sky. Earth itself was too far away to help. But it had not abandoned them. His heart leapt, and he heard the crowd below cry out in jubilation. Earth really had come to rescue them. There was hope. The fleet descended through the swarm of laces, fired relentlessly upwards by the invaders in the city. Explosions marked where the ships were annihilated by the swarm of artillery, but only a few were firing back. They were being slaughtered. Why are there so few of them fighting back, he thought, hope beginning to dissipate once again as they came closer. They can make out the shape of individual ships 
and its question was answered. Humanity had not sent a battle fleet. Not one frigate, cruiser, or battleship had come to rescue Oz's people. The distance from Earth had simply been too great. And yet, still, it looked as though every human ship in the sector had answered the call. Little ships of every shape and size. Asteroid miners, transport shuttles, freight haulers, diplomatic barges, luxury yachts, even some pirate frigates. Humanity's little ships had flocked here, selfishly putting their lives at risk to save his people. There were simply too many for the enemy to cope with, and for every one shot down, three more broke through the line to land in the city, sweeping up as many refugees as they could cram into their holds. The crowd cried in jubilation as clunky asteroid miner and an ancient-looking transport shuttle Pockmarked by laser fire, rattled into the spaceport. Down on the street, Mars joined the queue to board the ship. He was ushered aboard by a wizened old human. Refugees cramming themselves into every inch of space. And finally, they rose into the night. Through the window, the devastation was horrifying. Explosions continued to rock the city, buildings collapsing, millions slaughtered. Oz's anger deserted him when he was left with nothing but grief, thick and suffocating. He was grateful to be alive, but he knew he would never be able to return to the planet he called home. Earth, one year later. As the representative for the few of his species that survive, Oz stood alongside the human president at the dais, he had spoken from his species, although in reality no words would ever capture the debt of gratitude they owed humanity. Of the 3,243 little ships that had answered the call, 1,350 had not returned to Earth. They had sacrificed their lives and their futures to help his people. Humanity had selfishly come to their aid, and worse had made some ferocious enemies in doing so. He watched vision fill me with tears as the president addressed the planet. He was mid-speech, bearing his regal and confident. And I am confident that if given the choice and knowing the outcome, every one of those brave souls would still fly fearlessly into that storm of fire to the aid of the innocent. And yet, wars are not won by evacuations. I pledge here today in the sight of God, man, and our new allies that we will fight the tyranny of the enemy with every ounce of our strength. Humanity does not forget its friends. He glanced at us with fierce eyes, and at his command, a million warships rose into the night sky. This time, humanity was sending its big ships. Perhaps, Oz thought, I will see my home again. End of story. 1954. Story number one. Terran Cyber Warfare. Written by Theme Galza. The galactic community as a whole is comprised of specialists in one form or another. And these are telling of the worlds they come from. The Goval 
make excellent hulls, renowned for their damage absorption, hailing from a small planet often peppered with asteroids. The Ival produce shields that have been recorded to stop Mark IV beam cannon fire, having come from a system with massive solar flares on a regular basis. We, the Termal, pride ourselves on our engines. We were the fastest race to hit FTL, after all. This is a result of our cradle world having a heavy metal core and huge gravitational pull. Several other races hold lesser, yet still useful technologies, such as the Marvel and their medical nanites. These things, when shared, allowed us to build a great federation that should have been unbreakable. Yet broken, we nearly were. When the race calling themselves the Masters of War, the Cashvon, came from the dark space, we thought them a new friend. We were wrong, and they were indeed mighty. Having studied us from beyond the veil of the darkness, they had counters for our every move. Goval hulls were bypassed by a short burst EMP attacks. Ival shields became overloaded under Mark 7 ionized torpedoes. Our own engines were halted in their tracks by closing off and blockading hyperlanes. They even had a specialty designed combat routine for countering Huntroll tactics. The Huntroll! Those savages hadn't even left their world yet, for Alva's sake. So, understandably, when we found the humans by chance, we didn't expect much. Those contacts showed they had remarkable senses, and they could communicate across half the galaxy, even without FTL. But nothing else of note that could sway the war. They were friendly, at least, so we took them for a simple explorers, content to send out drones into the inky black and observe from the comfort of home. After the casual scouting party wiped out both first contact crews, we found the humans' resolve to be unyielding. They promised us aid. Them, a small, single-system race, was offering us aid. Oh, how far we had fallen. But we were desperate by then. All of us were on our last legs and grasping for hope, even if it meant seeking help from children. We had no choice. But the human scent surprised us. There was no secret fleet, no hidden armada beyond the veil, not even technology we couldn't replicate. They sent us a drone, a single craft, barely an antenna with an engine. But oh, what it did. It jumped through the rudimentary attempt at FTL towards the Cashball primary fleet, hailing them, wanting communication. How human, we would later say. The enemy at this point had taken our worlds, crashed our resolve, and almost dropped us of hope. And yet the humans wanted to talk. Well, they did more than talk. The casual commander mocked what he called an attempt at asking for mercy. He promised to burn Earth last, that they could watch us burn, and no despair. The drone broadcast a message after this, simple and short. Surrender and be forgiven. Naturally, the order was given and the drone was destroyed, yet not before releasing a signal that we could not at the time decipher. A signal that went on to do a great thing. Any casual ship that heard it simply shut down. All systems crippled, all weapons useless. And then the humans spoke over every channel and every frequency in the galaxy. Go home. And they did. The whole fleet turned around and dropped back into dark space. Sometime later, a new broadcast hit the galaxy. A world we did not know in a system that was unfamiliar. But the fleet we could see that we knew. And the humans were clearly in control still. 
Small shots peppered the planet's surface. Before yet one last message, surrender and be spared. End of story. Story number two. Forged, written by Squirrel Bay. Human ambassador Evan Crest carefully ascended the steps towards the dais, trusting to his stick and his memory to guide him. Forty years had passed, but although his sight had been cruelly taken from him, every facet of the hallway was etched keenly into his mind. It had, after all, been the last thing he had ever looked upon before his vision and his life had been plunged into darkness. He clenched the stick with white-knuckled strength, using it to make his way up the steps onto the platform, where he knew they would be watching his struggles with sadistic pleasure. The suffering of a lesser species had always amused the forged. Evan stumbled as he struggled to maintain balance on stumped feet. His toes had blackened, withered, and died from the frostbite he had acquired, hauling goods through the tundras of those forged in the ice. He wheezed through long scar from the impure air of the factories of those forged in the void. His good hand continued to grip his stick firmly, and the other flapped uselessly at his side. A punishment delivered by an overseer of those forged in the sand for the crime of succumbing to a blistering heat in their desert. With each step, the dull ache of a thousand old wounds reminded him of a lifetime that he'd spent in their servitude performing the tasks their biology prevented them from. He had been whipped and flayed, beaten and starved, but he had never broken. Instead, his will and defiance had grown stronger. His body had been battered and ruined, but his mind and resolve were as of steel. He limped steadily upwards, the memories continuing to savage his mind. Humanity, a species that could have survived, albeit with difficulty in any environment had been unheard of for the forged. Trapped on their home planet by the confines of their own biology, the discovery of humanity had represented an extraordinary opportunity for expansion and wealth for these three allied races. He had been the first to meet them. He had stood before them in this very chamber, filled with hope of a burgeoning relationship. They had crushed his hope as quickly as they had crushed Albion's meager defenses and the entire planet had been set to slavery. He reached the top step, the ground flattened, and his stick clattered against the rail, letting him know that he had arrived on the platform where he had excitedly, hopefully addressed them so many years before. The same spot where his eyes had been put out. He could picture them leering down at them from their balconies. Each species' representatives would be lounging in their custom habitat they so desperately needed for their survival. Speak quickly, human. An arrogant voice blasted through the speakers. We tire of your hobbling. The council has matters to discuss that are far more important than the entreaties of chattel. You will be allowed two of your minutes to address the council. Anger rushed through Evan. Steadying his nerves, he was the voice of millions. He gazed up to the voice with milky eyes and began to speak softly. For most of my lifetime, humanity has toiled under the heel of the forged. Where you are confined to the boundaries of your revolution, we have been forced to work in your place. We toil for you where you cannot, or will not. The labors of our species have made you fat, 
whilst human children fight and die for your scraps. Our adaptability, once our strength has become our shackle. His anger grew, strengthening his voice, and hand-clasping the stick shook with rage and adrenaline. For millennia, we dreamt of meeting others to share the universe with. We sought you out and offered you our strength so that we might all share in this bounty. But your greed and decadence caused you to reach out and snatch what we would have offered freely. He heard what passed for laughter amongst the three species, and an amused voice spoke. He took that which you could not defend. Our ancestors were forged by the brutality of our homeworlds. Your home, Albion, was a garden paradise. It is the right of the strong to take from the weak. You should be thankful to us. One day you may be strengthened by the hardships we forced you to endure. Albion was never our home. You mistook our humbleness for frailty. We were too few to resist you. But we have kept ourselves busy. Our true home was Earth, and now Earth has come to reclaim its children. Silence from the forge. In the distance, Evan could hear the sirens and confused shouting. His heart leapt. You take such pride in the suffering of your ancestors, but you did not realize that we too were forged. On Earth, humanity was forged in ice and cold bitter, enough to freeze the ice forged in its sleep. We eked out a living in the sands more scalding than the sand forged has felt. We tamed the void in our infancy, and soared the skies gleefully at speeds that would tear the void forged to pieces. We faced more hardships on our homeworld than your three species combined. And then we voluntarily put ourselves through more there is nothing you have done to us that in our history we have not already done to ourselves. Slavery, genocide, above all else, conflict has forged us. He could hear the sirens in the distance now. The representatives of the council were shouting with fear and alarm, demanding to know what was happening. The unmistakable thrum of a human dreadnought entering subspace above the station caused Eben to laugh aloud. He slowly began to unscrew the top of his stick maintaining his vice-like grip that he had kept on the top, and let the shaft fall to the ground. Above the din, Evan's voice thundered. This, he said, holding the stick aloft, is the trigger to a thermonuclear warhead that we have painstakingly hidden within the station. There are many others placed strategically within your empires. It has taken us decades. My life's work. He had their full attention now. Don't bother shooting me. When my finger is removed from this button, it'll instantly detonate, killing every being on the station. He could hear their fear, sense their terror. His only remaining regret was that he could not see the looks on their faces. We are those forged in war, and we are coming for you. He released his grip on the stick, and the last thing the Forge Council saw was his satisfied smile. End of story. 1955 Humans are healers, written by I am the Hype TFS. Usually, the manner that twisted on a world would affect the inhabitants based on their environment, giving them advantages over whatever the overarching theme of their world was. 
desert worlds had an abundance of water mages, inhabitants of water worlds mostly specialized in wind magic, and those who lived on barren worlds commonly had increased vitality and physical abilities, such as endurance and enhanced senses to ensure they could survive. These were just to name a few. But just because a world specialized in a certain type of magic didn't mean everyone was affected by the manner in the same way. Sometimes an individual character, personality, or inherent talents overrode the environmental specializations, and they developed magic better suited to them. This was not even at all rare either, roughly 30% of the world's population being labeled as unique mages. And because of their power was generally tied to their strongest traits, they experienced accelerated growth and prowess when it came to controlling their manner as compared to the majority of the population. They more often than not became influential figures of their worlds, and when they took to the stars, it would be a point of pride to compare and compete with the unique mages of other worlds. For the most part, these competitions were friendly, but of course there were those who took things too far and it led to war. But these never lasted long, not because the sides were able to come to an agreement or wanted to settle things peacefully, but because too many unique mages would die if they lasted more than a few years. No race wanted to lose its unique magic geniuses. Even if they weren't exceedingly rare, they were still highly valued minority, and while the rest of the population could also use magic, their gifts laid mostly in utility, not combat. But there was a rare magic, so rare, that perhaps only a single percent of a world's population might show aptitude for it. Healing magic. These mages transcended the classification of unique and were universally known as the blessed. Commoner, nobility, male, female, writer, blacksmith, professor, illiterate. It did not matter who they were, what they did, or how educated they were. If someone showed even a hint of promise in healing magic, they and any family they might have were immediately taken under protection of care of the world's rulers. They would become saints in the eyes of anyone who learned of their gifts and would enjoy luxury and respect on any world they visited, no matter if it was ruled by friend or foe. This was because civilization would be willing to fight to or but extinction if one of their blessed was injured or, gods forbid, died. No race, no matter how strong, would have the confidence to go to war with an enemy who did not care if they lived or died so long as their foes died with them. So the healers were untouchable, which led to arrogance and ego, but they had the right to be proud. They were the blessed, and there were no others like them. Until humans finally made their way into space. When humanity left their manor-starved world and headed into the stars, an event occurred that shook the rest of the galaxy to the core. Upon entering the abundantly manor-rich space outside their solar system, the manor reacted almost violently upon contact to their cells. It treated the absence of magic within humans almost like an injury or illness and poured endlessly into them in an attempt to heal them. Leaving their system seemed to have acted like a punching through an invisible barrier as one human's aboard experienced manner for the first time. It leaked into the system, slowly making its way deeper until it reached Earth. Finally, the same condition present in the habitants there, and the overriding personal traits and environmental factors due to the perceived urgency to fix humanity. For the first time in recorded history, every member of a species was gifted with the same magic affinity. An entire race blessed. 
Not only that, but because the manor had reacted so strongly to the absence of magic in human cells, it had essentially filled them to overflowing, shattering the previously held beliefs that there was a certain limit of manor that a single person could hold. Mana poured off humans in waves only to be reabsorbed back into them again and again, like a reactor that would somehow take the energy it generated back into itself as an infinite self-sustaining fuel. Instantly, humanity became the most terrifying race in the galaxy. Despite their youth and inexperience, there was no species that wished to go to war with humanity. This was not because there was no shortage of races who didn't want to make friends with the entire race of healers, but because of the way their magic worked. The continuous recycling of overflowing mana through their bodies meant that their cells were constantly being flooded with healing magic, increasing their natural ability to regenerate to an insane degree and providing a significant boost to their longevity. A human could still die, but anything less than a certain fatal blow and there was no guarantee that they would stay down for the count. As if that wasn't terrifying enough, even before they gained mana, humans had a history of pushing their bodies past their limits to the point that in exchange for short bursts of seemingly impossible strength and endurance, they could end up crippling themselves when the effects wore off. But now, it was as if their limiter had been removed, as if this magic was truly always meant for them, because they could now push themselves even further without fearing their bodies would be unable to withstand the backlash. If humans were willing to push themselves past the literal breaking point in times of desperation and in anger when their own lives might be the cost, just how far would they now be willing to go now that breaking themselves was little more than a temporary side effect? But, as would come to be considered the norm with humans, there was always a flip side. Their capacity for aggression and violence was counted only by the limitlessness of their compassion and adaptability. It was accepted that there were limits to healing, disease and conditions that healing magic couldn't fix or was only temporary measure. But the human doctors, who had trained their whole lives to pull people back from the edge of death, with nothing but their own two hands, now had magic. They combined medical techniques and treatments with magic to perform operations that previously were theoretical or completely impossible. The rest of the galaxy had doctors, of course. There were only a handful of healers in each race, and they couldn't heal everyone. But they were just as limited as the humans used to be. If one was found to be a healer, then they were set for the rest of their lives. They had one job, and that was to use their magic. They didn't need to learn how to do anything else because of their already miraculous power. Why would a healer learn medical techniques when their power was enough for most situations? Why would they put in so much effort and time into something that they would only rarely or possibly even never use? The reliance on their magic became their crutch. But the humans were always looking to mix and match their talents, finding unorthodox ways to solve the unsolvable even before they learned that magic truly existed. Now doctors could save doomed patients, explorers could brave the harshness of unknown environments, Soldiers could hold the line that much longer. They didn't fall into the same trap of haughtiness and self-importance their counterparts had, because they all had this extraordinary gift, not just a few. For humanity, making everyone special into the same way didn't make them the same or less special overall. They were all uniquely special in how they chose to use their shared gift. It was their own reasonings and desires that shaped how they wanted to use it, for themselves and for those around them.
That was what made them special. While others might have seen this as a peak of their civilization and been satisfied with themselves, humanity's insatiable appetite for more drove them onward and upward in search of new peaks to climb and new limits to break through. More places to explore, more time to live, more knowledge to learn. There was nothing so great, not even this powerful magic that was the envy and desire of countless species that could cause humanity to forget to march ever forward. And perhaps that is why, out of all the races in the galaxy, humans are healers. End of story. Story number two. The Beautiful Ones, written by Fiamma Galathon. When we ascended into the stars, we never hoped to find someone similar to us. There probably was some life. Of course there was. The universe was too big to be empty of life, except us. And we found them. First, the slug-like race of the Guntari. Then, various other species. Sapient species. That populated planets around different stars, closer or farther from their cradle world. It, uh, it was an adventure. An adventure all in itself. Making communications work. Battling with xenophobia and hostility, both amongst us and among them. But it was worth it, because we weren't as alone as we feared we were. And then, we met them. Them. The race that we named Feyre. The beautiful ones. The Feyre came from a world that was both a paradise and hell. It is lush with green forests, even more so than our homeworld once was. The water is plenty, and the beauty of the world is simply breathtaking. Walking here felt like dreaming. Until we saw how horrifically powerful the planet was. How, in the evening, it could transform kilometer upon kilometers of green, beautiful nature into barren wasteland. How unspeakable its whims were. And the animals. How can you even describe such things? The elegance, the beauty, the otherworldliness, mixed with horror that they flowy, powerful forms elicited, made you dizzy simply looking at one, even the most harmless. We were sure there was some sort of magic at work. We never before, and probably never after, found something like that. The sapient species of this world had to be something else. We had been sure of that. Well, we weren't that much off. They look uncannily much like us, their forms familiar and yet completely alien. A roundish head on an erect torso, two hands, two legs, one pair of eyes. Their eyes are like ours, but so much sharper, so much deeper, so much wilder, marked with knowledge that shouldn't be kept in one place with wild creativity, marked with tales of things beyond our imagination, eyes that look straight through your soul. They loved to dance, sing, create and care, and yet they love to fight, yell and destroy and kill as much as their planet does. Their cities are full of nature, and they don't seem to care. But when nature does something to one of them, they retaliate. With a simple song they can entrance you, not even realizing it. With one well-placed sentence, they will make you think until your head hurts. With the amount of love they give you to start to wonder if they can hate. But the next second you see something so horrific done for love that you start to realize that they tend to ignore the difference. And this starts making sense the more you see them. The whole planet of the Fair is like that. 
love mingling with hate, pain intertwining with pleasure, nature sinking into their cities, their cities sinking into nature. They're beautiful, so beautiful, breathtaking and elegant, dangerous and horrific. A fear has it all. They are beings of extremes, of opposites, animals, yet sharper and wiser than most of us, weak, helpless, and frail, yet death machines ready to kill, maim, and die for a cause they find valid, so similar to us, so close, but so, so different. The first time you meet one, your brain will itch, your vision will blur and fizzle. Don't fret, you'll get used to that. They understand this feeling, empathic to a fault, even if they don't experience it. Long accustomed to seeing creatures like them and yet different, seemingly longing to meet someone like this. If you get lucky, they might get to liking you. If you are determined, they might start looking at you with interest. Then sometimes, they'll give you their love, their care, maybe their lust. You can accept it and live things that go outside any boundaries of our imagination. You can decline it and stay free. Yes, there are some powerful beings, the Feyre, the children of the stars, Gaians, Terrans, humans, however you call them. Being their slave is a fate far, far better than being free and never seeing the things that can be, that could be, if we hadn't destroyed our world. I chose a Feyre's binding, and I don't regret for a second of it. End of story. 1,956 Story number one, Overkill, The Human Way, written by Teller of Tall Tales. My ship spun quietly through the void. The Riparan pirate ship chasing me closing in for the kill as my engine sputtered and spit their last belch of ions into the void. Eight days, eight days they've been chasing my ship. No doubt after the aether in my cargo hold. My distress beacon pinged quietly off into empty space. No one was coming. I was far too out of my transmissions to reach anyone but the pirates behind me, I suppose. I sat back in my piloting chair and slid all four hands behind my head. Nothing to do about it now. Might as well die comfortable. My beacon chirped and a hollow display popped up from the control panel. No doubt the pirates here to taunt me again. This is Captain Leandra Norman of the VFS Faffle. We have your coordinates and we're on our way. Sit tight, we'll be there soon. I bolted upright just as I comprehended the words coming through the transmission. My ship spun slowly around, giving me a view of the pirate ship chasing me. Just a ship sixth the size burst from the warp portal, careening to a halt between my ship and the pirates. There was a tense moment where I assumed that they were establishing a communication link. Curiously, I got one as well. I opened it up and watched on in surprise. A red-haired female human stared intently at the Ripper and Pirate Captain as the pirate confidently laid out some very unfair terms of surrender. The human was quiet for a moment before turning to her right and asking, Do we have access to the ship's internal address system? Yes, sir. Good. Captain Leandra cleared her throat as she stunned the Pirate Captain before speaking, her voice echoing back through the Pirate Captain's microphone. This is Captain Leandra of the VFS Fafo. We have every gun in our arsenal trained on your ship. Surrender now, or you will come to understand the meaning of our ship's namesake. The pirate captain laughed raucously at the human's absurd request. Closing the comms link with a snort, Captain Leandra sighed. All right, time for the fireworks, boys. 
I looked out of the viewport just as my ship spun back around to view the two ships as they faced off. The tiny VFS Fafo was suddenly bathed in light as missiles erupted from every surface on the ship and careened towards the pirates. The pirates' point defense systems detonated several, but there were still hundreds that slipped fast and detonated against the pirate ship's hull in a blinding flashes of nuclear fire. The pirates fired back, a railgun slug discharged from their massive cannons mounted on their ship's nose. I watched in awe as a streak of light did a complete 180-degree loop around the VFS Fafo shields and shot right back down the barrel of the cannon that it was shot from. Fire erupted from the ruined barrel. The pirate ship began to turn, trying to expose its broadside and gain usage of its plasma cannons. But something about the electricity arcing over the VFS Fafo's hull made me think that they might not get the chance. As lasers began to be reflected by the VFS Fafo shields, she fired whatever she'd been charging. The pirate ship burst into two, just as my ship spun to face away from the battle. I waited, with bated breath, as the two ships came back in view. Correction. As the two ships and a fucking planet ender-sized asteroid that had biscuited the pirate ship. Well, uh, that shouldn't bother anyone anymore. Would you like assistance with repairs? I nearly jumped out of my skin at the sound of the captain's voice. Finding my words, I asked hesitantly, Did, uh, did, did you guys just warp an asteroid into that pirate ship? Captain Neandra nodded pridefully. Oh yeah, this is old tech though. God, I wish we could shell out the funds for a newer model. We'd have encased them in the asteroid. I was speechless for a very long time. I shook my head in disbelief. The pirate ship was an easy five kilometers long and a good three kilometers tall and wide. Uh, how? Captain Leandra laughed merrily. <laughs> we find an asteroid, install an extended stay warp drive and generator in its core, send it into warp space without an exit destination, so it's pretty much stationary. Then we just open an exit warp where we need it, forward it to the exit warp's coordinates to the asteroid and uh, she mimed something exploding in her hands. I tried to stop my hands from shaking as I took in that information. You humans, uh, scare me, but, uh, yes, I, I would like help with the repairs. End of story. Story number two. The Race of the Blood Gods, written by Alcoholic Historian. The high priest could barely contain his fear after the session. His hands shaking, his sweat raining all over his body, a strong headache numbing his vision. What is it? What did you see? Admiral Kazat Orc demanded of the shaking priest. Compose yourself! This is a matter of state security, he screamed. His patients running low, his subordinates and assistants frightened by the state of their high priest, the beacon of their faith in this world. High priest Akaad was not easily frightened. He had seen the depths of the high realm before, where the consciousness of the abstract roam real and free, evil from a psionic species like his own, amongst the Nerhi, he had managed to reach the level of elevated ascendance, as he did. I, I, just, uh, I, I had never imagined, he tried to articulate, still holding his head with his sweaty blue hands, his fourteen fingers feeling like Obversian soup. Bigger Ad, I'm getting really concerned right now. I've never seen you like this, Admiral Orc said. His impatience turning into anxiety. S -s Sorry, uh, I'm trying to pull myself together, Ikkaad managed to say, slowly sitting on the floor to the altar of eternity. 
looking at the idols of the mother goddess and her celestials with a sense of loss and dizziness. Whatever you saw, I see by your reaction is not something to take lightly, said the Admiral, now trying to empathize with the tired priest by sitting by his side. And uh, you'd be right, said Ikaad, now more or less capable of focusing on the conversation. I saw not what you did, but surely it couldn't be something that you haven't seen before. Nothing we couldn't deal with. I wish that were the case. I wish you were right. But the truth of the High Realm is indisputable, said the now grieving-looking priest. How so, Ikaad? The deities of the High Realm have always been something our priesthood could deal with. Even the gods of the other races are within your habilitus. Not these ones. These ones are not something I or any other ordained one could deal with. What do you mean? These gods are made me channel. They are like nothing I've ever seen or even conceived before. Nothing like our celestials are the gods of any other race I've dealt with, said the priest, his face not changing from his concerned state. Ikaad knew something was off ever since the Admiral brought in the offering for the ritual. It wasn't so much his psionic senses, but more like a physical feeling, like being watched in the dark, not being able to fathom from where such praying eyes come from. The military laid him in front of him a collection of holy artifacts from the species, barely known gods. Five holy books, seven small statues, four paintings, and five small undetermined amulets. All of them belonging to the cults of different deities, from this enigmatic species, the Federal Assembly of the Nahana Nations was at the verge of war with, over the reluctance to abandon a system the Nurhi had intention to colonize first. These items were secretly collected after several simultaneous covert operations around trade posts, ships, and cultural and diplomatic institutions of the species. Channeling them was hard. That was already unusual, like if I was not worthy of their presence, the priest explained. With every touch of their holy relics, my grasp onto the high realm was less and less on my control. I was being taken over and detained. I spiraled around in unknown places, cities of gold, silver and gems, ethereal clouds, and harmonious music, exotic domains I have never seen other deities possess. Even our own mother, blasphemy! One military aide said, How could you defile their position like this, insulting the glory of the mother of all? A glory small on par of rivers and blood and cities of marble, snapped Ikad at the young aide, descending into a frenzy of anxiety and erratic anger. I've seen their power, their authority over their children. I've seen the devotion of their kind. Licks of rivers and oceans of blood spilled in their names. The greatest glories and the worst of atrocities in service of their own heaven. Igad, calm yourself, ordered the Admiral, completely taken back by the sudden outburst of emotions of the famously stoic high priest. His orders unanswered as the prophetic madness continued. And they saw me. They saw us, our people and our celestials. Can you believe the mother herself frightened by their might, their faces of imperium over souls? Life, death, and blood. Blood. Our blood, they told me. At this point, the Admiral knew something went terribly wrong and ordered his aides to escort the High Priest with his own acolytes to be contained and treated. And as the High Priest was taken away, a primordial fear of persecution overcame him as he heard the warnings of the inconsolable Ikaad. 
Leave their children alone. They'll be our doom. Yahweh will burn our cities. Raham will curse our lines. The great spirit will strike. Can you see? Doom, they told me. Kali will delight in our hearts. Dengri shall feast in our blood. Their children, Admiral. Take him out already, Ork uttered in desperation. Their mother Mary warned me. Beasts or absolute doom. Hear them, Admiral. Hear their warning. The Federal Assembly trusted Ikkaad. He had never been wrong, although dissent was strong. The covert pressure coming from the military finally guided their decision. By majority, the Assembly voted in favor of withdrawing their claims to the system in favor of the United Nations of Earth. While many doubted the warnings of the High Priest, his vindication would come after humanity was attacked by the scourging Laraki. The proud empire of enslaving cannibal reptiles took human diplomacy for weakness, and in a surprise attack glassed their colony of Alpha Centauri and enslaved and, in some cases, ate the survivors. The ancient and cruel empire of monsters that had survived a thousand enemies and tribulations finally put to the torch by humanity, thirsty for blood and hungry for retribution. The worlds of the reptiles in ruin, their slaves taking revenge, and their armies crushed by humanity, who sang in praise of their victories to their gods. No one doubted Ikad ever again. Not after all other priests heard the gods of the Luraki, as they screamed in horror and pain as the hands of an unknown enemy, a weeping human lady in white and blue robes being the only image that could be channeled over. The screams. End of story. 1957. Unshakable. Written by I am the hype TFS. It is time for a regime change. The humans have held the reins of this federation for over three millennia. And it is time for them to admit that they are no longer worthy of their position. It is time for the elders to make way for the new blood. I call for a vote to replace the current speaker. The Argobi representative's voice was full of passion and righteous indignation as he spoke, his throat frills flaring out occasionally as if for emphasis. The human representative who held the position of high speaker was seated in the center of the massive circular chamber, surrounded by walls with hundreds upon hundreds of alcoves carved into them. Seated within were ambassadors of the various and diverse races who made up the Federation. The speaker's chair was positioned on the ground floor of the chamber, and for convenience, when a representative wished to take the floor, a massive hologram would be projected in the air above the speaker for the others to watch and listen to. Likewise, when it was the speaker's turn, they would instead be shown, and when anyone wanted to interject, a ring around their alcove would light up. This function was also used for when votes took place. Votes like this. Several alcoves lit up, signaling that they seconded the Orgobi's motion. Unsurprisingly, these were some of the passionate representatives' close allies, and to its credit, the speaker appeared neither angry nor concerned about the vote, simply looking up through the projected image of the Orgobi to look directly at the alien's face. The corner of his mouth raised in light amusement. Well then, it looks like we have a vote on our hands. We will take a ten-minute recess to allow some time for our esteemed colleagues to organize their thoughts and converse with others to decide where their vote will fall. 
while the others started private group chats between allies of their alcoves, the human simply rested his head against the back of his chair and closed his eyes. The Orgovian and his allies saw this and were already celebrating their victory. The human wasn't even trying to secure votes and seemed to have given up on even attempting to do so. The look that he'd received from the man nagged in the back of his mind, but his own ego and affirming words of his conspirators drowned out that minor concern. In reality, the human was trying to think back through the history of the Federation and remember the first instance of humanity's authority being challenged. He had obviously not been born yet, but he recalled it in his studies as a teenager that the reason championed at the time was along the lines of humanity being too immature to hold such a position. Oh, how times have changed. First they were too young, and now they were too old. To be fairly ancient race by now, having been a part of the Federation, since they had less than a hundred member species over 6,000 years ago, in truth, they had been in some form of control for most of that time, subtly using their ever-increasing sway to change and enact failsafe laws and codes to prevent any species from holding the main seat of power hostage. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It was a well-known phrase amongst humans, and so while they wanted to hold the reins and prove themselves worthy to lead the Federation long into the future, they took the time to make sure that they couldn't take advantage of the system. To make sure that if the day came and they needed to be stopped, there were methods that the other races could use to do so. When they were confident in the measures they had taken, the ability for a single representative to call for the Speaker's removal being one of them, they finally put forth their bid for power and graciously accepted when it was given. If for some reason humanity fell out entirely with the Federation, that would be on the other races to deal with. But at the very least the humans made sure they couldn't abuse the Federation and force the other species to play along with their games. They knew better than any how dangerous they could be and how good they were at manipulating others. Only the humans could truly contain the humans. The speaker opened his eyes after ten minutes had elapsed and his hologram filled the air above him. The assembly will return to order. We will now commence the vote. All in favor of removing the high speaker from their position. The Gobi's alcove lit up first, followed immediately by several dozen others and... Uh, that was it. Forget a majority, the number of illuminated alcoves could have been tripled and they still wouldn't have reached the halfway mark. Though Gobi stood stunned, his mouth open and closed repeatedly, his frills pressed flat against his neck, unable to utter a single word. All opposed! A wave of light wove its way around the chamber as hundreds of alcoves lit up, many of the occupants looking for the Argobi representative with the same amusement the human had shown previously. 68 in favor and 473 opposed. The motion fails to pass. Is there any new business that anyone would like to introduce before we move on to the day's scheduled matters? No? Then let us continue. The next item on the agenda is a request for financial aid from... The human moved on from their attempted ousting without skipping a beat and led the assembly for the rest of the session while the Ogobi representative sat in abject silence. It felt as though he was trapped in his own mind, going over all the events and meeting that had led to this moment. What was supposed to be a triumphant victory? But the more he did, the more he realized just how much he had deluded himself into thinking he ever had a chance. It only now struck him why the human's amused smile had bothered him as much as it did, because he'd seen it before. 
from all the representatives he had approached with his plan. Not the ones who echoed his sentiment and voted with him, but the ones who had listened to what he had to say before smiling with that same smile and excusing themselves to take a call or go to a meeting. At the time, he had taken those smiles as silent affirmations that even if they wouldn't lead the charge, they would support him from behind while he waved the banner. He had become a victim of an echo chamber he created, using his vocal minority of allies to hype himself up and blind him to the fact that those smiles hadn't been ones of support, but of amusement and sympathy. They'd seen that his passion had overridden his reason, and any attempt to dissuade him from his chosen course would have been in vain. So they held their tongues and waited for him to let his failure snap him out of it. The most bittersweet thing about the entire situation was when it was all said and done. It wasn't his once loud and proud allies who reached out in comfort and console him. No, they had suddenly cut all lines of communication, wanting to distance themselves from someone who had openly tried to pry power from humanity's clearly unshakable grip, as if they themselves were somehow innocent bystanders. It had been the high speaker himself sending a message on the Argobi's personal device. Very good, really. Don't sweat it. That simple message nearly brought him to tears, but it was only the beginning. More came flooding in from humanity's allies, some just checking in to see how he was doing, and others recounting their times their own race had tried something similar and met with the same results. There were even those who joked that it almost seemed to be a rite of passage at this point for a species to challenge the humans. One representative had even made a group chat. Humanity's brutality, adaptability, and determination were legendary across the galaxy. But today was the first time the Ogobi had personally experienced their compassion and willingness to forgive. The more he thought about it, the more he became convinced that was the most intimidating aspect of all. How many enemies and rivals had fallen at humanity's feet only for them to reach out their hand in friendship? Some might have seen that as a sign of weakness, to offer peace to the defeated foe instead of finishing them off, knowing full well they could one day turn around and bite the very same hand that spared them. But how many of those races were still around? How many had mistaken humanity's kindness for weakness, and ended up begging for their compassion a second time, only to find that humanity's mercy had its limits? This was the mistake the Argobi would never make and a lesson that he would never forget. Story number two. Soul Weapons and Human Adaptability, written by Theme Gauzer. The Klimtar were known across the galaxy for their soul-destroying weapons. Few races fully understood that they have souls, much less that it can be attacked, or defended for that matter. This had led the Klimtar dominance in every battlefield, for weapons that attack the souls of warriors cannot be withstood by mere physical barriers alone. Even energy barriers serve only to delay the effects. Luckily for the galactic community, they are now content with their lot, having claimed enough space to make themselves self-sufficient. The might of their military is mainly focused on defense. At least it was until the humans came. Upon first contact, it was found that humanity is incapable of integration with galactic law not because of any inherent flaw with them, or even us, but a fundamental misalignment of goals and ideals. We would simply never get along. And so, it was decided that the humans' problem must be resolved. Yet their military showed remarkable flexibility and adaptability in almost every battlefield. This should have been a sign 
yet we were too blind to see it. In response to the humans who sought the Klintar for aid, before we could lose ground, they accepted and sent us a single Ventatar Dreadnought, equipped with the Soul Breaker armaments and Ur's escorts fleets to fight on the front line. When struck by such firepower, we discovered that the humans were not reduced to mindless husks, as we expected. Instead, the impossible happened. The humans adapted. Where the one soul wasn't enough, they grew a second. When the soul was destroyed, it came back stronger. When faced with annihilation, human souls bound together and manifested into real space. And the horrors it brought. Records are spotty from the first manifestations. But what we do have indicates that a behemoth of sheer soul power lashed out of the void and fought back. The rendered hull and sheared armor plates are all the proof we have that the Ventatar ever existed. But it did not stop there. The beast, as far as we can tell, proliferated, reaching into the humans nearby and dragging their souls into real space along with it. Still, the humans adapted again. Now, with their soul as an external companion, they are immune to soul-breaking that have an eternally loyal guardian few can perceive and fewer can harm. Human space has since been quarantined, the Klintar entrusted with upholding the blockade. Meanwhile, the galaxy sleeps a little less easily, knowing that they are out there, and the humans hold a grudge. End of story. 1958 Story number one. Steel Dragon, written by Weekly Faithlessness Zero. The tavern door swung open with force as a young cake strides in confidently, sits down and orders a drink. He sounds extremely happy, and I get quite curious as to why, since there isn't so much to be happy about in this mining sector. Say, young one, what's with the cheerfulness? Just got married? I asked, far too curious to hold back. Not even close, One-Eye, he snaps back with a huge smile. I saw them! I saw the steel dragons! They were two of them flying low. They weren't around for long, but I got to hear the thundering roar as they flew past at blistering speeds. I thought that they were only legends, but it turns out that they are real. Today is a good day for me, old man. Yeah, uh, I see, I reply thoughtfully. I remember the old war where my scouting party of eight dragon riders were destroyed by them. I was the only survivor. The deep screech when they spit fire still haunts me to this day. Tell me, Pops, how did you lose your eye? Cake asks, feathers on his head signaling his curiosity. I've only been in this frontier sector for about a month and I've seen you around and I've been wondering why you wear that eye patch of yours. What's even weirder is that you still seem to be working in the pits. That's no place for old birds. Funny you ask. Then has to do with those steel dragons of yours, I say, mid-sip. Really? Cake replies, surprised and curious. Did you fight in the old war? Yes, I did. I also thought they were creatures of legends until I came across one on a patrol north of the border. It's almost like they know when we fly into their territory, really, with how quickly they respond. I was in the investigation party of eight. We were making our way up to give a report on what happened to the army that marched north. We had barely made it past the estimated border when, uh, in the distance, we heard a deep, unrelenting roar, like something was over the valley of clouds, trying to warn us to stay away. Well, 
We were set on our mission when out of the nearby clouds from above, fiery arrows the size of an adult struck four of the riders, blowing them out of the sky without a trace. I pause to take a sip of my drink, and Cake examines me attentively, checking for any signs of deceit, with a hint of awe. Before we even knew what had happened, before I even turned my head back to look forward, two others were hit, this time by what looked like smaller arrows. What was left of them fell to earth in an unceremonious wreck. I could only hope that they had died instantly. Miraculously, the other two bolts missed my wingman and myself. However, the other exploded behind my wingman, taking his dragon out. I can still hear the scream as he fell below the clouds into hell, bound to his incapacitated dragon, dragged by the straps that kept him safe not even a few seconds ago. It had dawned on me that then that I was alone, then seeing as how I was now flying into certain dance against an invisible enemy, I had to turn back. I can still remember the grief, the determination to live on for my fallen comrades. I needed to make it back. I couldn't give a report on the missing army, but this I could say. Maybe then I could convince the others that we had started a futile war against heaven. I paused again, taking another swig to collect my thoughts. At this point, I could tell that Cake was totally invested in my story, so I continued. But it was then that it happened. A dragon flying so fast, sound followed it like thunder. It flew past in the blink of an eye, the small break in the clouds that I was in. The sheer force of its passing startled my dragon to the point that it almost threw me off its back. Luckily, the straps that were my wingman's demise did their job for me. Perhaps the gods didn't want me dead that day, I thought. And then I saw it again flying past, this time farther away, as if it was sizing me up, challenging me to a duel before turning up so sharply and elegantly, reflecting the sunlight that came through the clouds. I didn't follow it as it roared through the clouds, cutting upwards towards the heavens. And when I broke through the top of the cloud, an endless sea of slightly yellow white stared back, beckoning me to return to the safety of Earth. I once again pause, this time to order a new drink as I'm getting close to the bottom of this one. If I was to verbalize my nightmares like this, I might as well be too drunk to remember tonight. I glance over a cake still sitting there, this time leaning into me with high levels of intrigue. I continue. As I soared above the kingdom of mortals, I thought that maybe here my comrades were still flying alongside me to guide me into destroying the steel beast. I still had no idea how outmatched I was then as I looked over my right shoulder and saw the beast flying towards me, wings folded in at maximum tilt. I wondered then what mad creature would fly that fast. But it drew its fire breath on me. It wasn't anything I had seen before. It was deadly accurate. A beam of red fire capable of annihilating anything it hit. The beam threw past me as the sounds of my creature breathing fire reached in my ears. It was a sharper, terrifying roar. The war cry of a mad beast that had gone berserk, looking to kill. Just hearing it was enough to give me nightmares I never imagined possible. The beam of fire missed, and the dragon shrieked past below mine, almost blowing me out of the air again with sheer force. 
He then turned upwards again, and it was then, against the deep dark blue of the sky, that I finally saw it for what it was. An angel. A cruel and merciless angel, intent on destroying life wherever it saw it. It folded its wings out as if lost speed at the apex of its loop. It was truly the most beautiful thing that I have saw in my life. And then I was at peace. I was ready to be taken by this angel of death. The gods didn't attend on me living that day. They sent their best angel to destroy us. We had marched into the kingdom of heaven, and they were making sure we never walked out. Gulping down the rest of my drink, I continued. It came down on me as swiftly as it went up, and it once again let out a deafening war cry. A streak of red fire tore off my mount's wing, and then the long fall back into hell began. The dragon I was riding was desperately flailing his remaining wing around, like he was grasping for the ledge that simply wouldn't be there. It was as we fell that his tail hit me in the face. One of his sharp scales took my eye on the edge of consciousness. I managed to free myself from the harness so eager to take my life too, and glided my way back down to earth. It was a miracle I survived. I spent the next couple of hours limping back at low altitude on my own wings. I was imprisoned by the officials because they believed I was lying, even in the battered state I was in. Did you get to see the face of the angel at least? Cake replied curiously but carefully. I did. It had no face. But as it flew past the belly of my dragon, I looked into the eyes of death. Though the bulbous front of the angel, there was glass where two creatures were sitting. They had no faces. Instead, I could feel their intense stare through the faceless reflective faces. One second longer, and I would have believed I was staring into the eyes of a higher power. I simply couldn't imagine something that comes from the plane of existence far above ours. I start my next pint, hoping to finish it before I started feeling tired. Gods exist, and they sent their best to kill us in defense of their territory they claimed when they descended from the stars. End of story. Story number two. There's so fact, written by H.S. Kentuck. Finally, as required by the 77th paragraph of the war agreement we signed, the Elkanah Republic agreed to abandon all claim to the unexplored sector of Carcifer. After finishing its speech, Bahatok, the Republic representative, took a breath before looking at the now old enemy, the Feshner Shrak, the Minion representative. His fluffy pointy ears and fur both vibrating from the contentment that was now radiating from his face and eyes, the satisfaction of the victor. The Feshner Shrak, the Minion, agreed to terms of surrender, presented by the Elkanah Republic, as required by the first paragraph of the war agreement we signed. Towering over them, the Grand Arbiter brought down his hammer in a loud bang. The Galactic Union has witnessed the agreement between both of you, and it's pleased to the end of this conflict. May the Republic and the Dominion both find peace in their future interactions. The two representatives nodded at each other, knowing both well they would not be the case. After an hour of light discussion between the many dignitaries involved in the treaty, in which the Dominion representative did his best to not showing smugness, and the Republic one, his best at not showing how insulted it was. Everyone finally grew tired of congratulating everyone. The summit came to an end. 
and everyone bade farewell to everyone. In the shuttle bringing him back to the Republic territory, Bahatok found a minister of warfare waiting for him. Well done, Representative Bahatok, said the minister. They took the bait. Yes, Minister, it seems our work on pushing the 27th paragraph to allow us to choose which sector we will abandon was the right choice. I hope the report of those primitives are all true. Well, almost all of them. Do not worry, Representative. We accidentally dropped a ship with FTL and many other common galactic tech on those, uh, primitives. It took them less than half a cycle to redesign it to their need. I assure you, when the Dominion enter the unexplored sector of Cosfer, these humans are going to be their doom. About the reports, I think I know the one you are giving you a second thought. For the better or worse, they're also true. It is quite concerning. I almost feel bad for those annoying furballs that are the Fefshnishrak. They, uh, they're, they are so fat. End of story. 1959. I miss fighting the humans, written by Credible 333. I miss fighting the humans. If you're anything like us, Zeveb, you will too. Once the coming war is over. Dove claimed it was true, but it wasn't the whole truth, as befits an ambassador to the Fuv. After all, they had the largest fleet in the galaxy, outmassing the Zeveb fleet 20 times over with a combined engine-slash-weaponry power output five times greater. Lying to them might be considered an insult worthy of attack, and telling them the truth only gave them an advantage they didn't earn and didn't need. Duv had, due to an accident of Zeviv evolution, quite enjoyed parts of fighting the humans. Why did you stop then? My understanding is that you had destroyed most of the human fleet, you fought the V, Zai, and the Independent Worlds League, who've all had larger fleets, larger armies, and more political support in the Assembly. Well, budgetary constraints came into play for one thing. Also, at the time, there were indications some of our subjugated races might revolt, and much of our military power was needed to prevent it. Again, this was true. In fact, it was amazing that he had to explain it to the Fav brilliant advisor. Even. A cursory examination of the conflict would have told him that, yes, the war had been extremely costly. If the position of the brilliant advisor hadn't been hereditary, he'd have assumed the question was a veiled insult. But no, this guy genuinely didn't know. The Fav, particularly their nobility, didn't generally inquire about the habits, economy, or history of other races. They had emerged first and had grabbed a series of rich worlds before the humans, Zevon. V, or anyone else that even escaped their own planet. The sheer amount of resources they acquired immunized them from needing to take other races into account. To some extent, they researched Species 7 because they could feel the military in the same weight class. Nobody else counted. It must be hard living within such constraints. We father, of course, could lose feats equal to your entire navy and replace them within months. There is also no chance of our slaves rebelling. Unlike yours. Actually, after the war we abandoned slavery. The races are not entirely free, but they have some liberties. Keep much of their production and generally far better. After which war? As I understand it, you have two wars ongoing now. Yes, with the V and the IWO again. But when the Zavibs say the war, it always means the war with the humans. The other species, well, they, uh... Look, Zeb of Evolution was heavily influenced by highly selective mating. 
Yes, well, I hardly wish to discuss that, nor do I see how it is relevant to fighting humans, or whatever objection you have to our battle policy. Rest assured, your esteemed brilliance, I have no objection whatsoever to you killing all the humans you capture, but it might be more efficient instead to simply sell them to us. So you want to have slaves again? I understand. Not exactly. You see, the humans did something we hadn't seen in previous wars. Not even those with ourselves. They surrendered and then attempted to escape. Previously, opponents either fought to the death or just gave up once captured. The humans seem to think of captivity as just another part of war. They constructed tunnels, fake transportation orders, disguises that made them look like other species. Once I offered a Saimar a stimstick, and when it refused, its breath hit my wrist, and I went, Wait, that's hot air, Saimar. You're cold-blooded. Every day was a constant battle just to keep them out of our trading ships to neutral worlds. So, why don't you just kill them? Well, for a start, they would have killed our prisoners. Secondly, and this is the real reason for my proposal, we loved chasing them. This was an actual lie. It was not the main reason, not even close. Certainly, would have given his right front arm to chase humans again. However, it was. We love checking their batteries every night to find traces of whatever scheme they were cooking up. And there was always one. There's a reason Human Hunters was the top-rated show for 11 years. It was like a game of five kings, but against the rival that spent all day thinking about how to get his queen to the end. I was the top retrieval expert, and I can tell you, the ladies loved it. Nothing proves your genes more than matching brain, imagination, and physical prowess with human and winning. Lately, I've had not much success with getting extra females. This again is true. Doove had settled down with Law and hadn't mated with anyone else since the end of the war. So you want us to risk death capturing the humans alive just so that you can mate? If you don't take a human prisoner, they'll fight to the death. Believe me, you don't want that. Plus, the military information they have will be more valuable to us than you. Again, do was telling the truth. After this war is finished, you won't have to fight the humans. The destruction will be complete. Doos clenched his jaw as hard as he could to stop the short box his species used as laughter. Now, his brilliance was telling the truth. As our price are willing to pick them, Erical rates of 5 MS per light year. Yes, but since that is combat zone, we'll be using fast armored transports. Their sensors will have to be fully employed. That would mean that we'd be scanning your ships, since we aren't the threat to the FUV. Yet, he mentally added, I assume that's not a problem. Agreed. One more thing. I've heard the humans might be using something called the Letters of Marquis. It's basically legalized piracy against your civilian transport ships. The aim will be to divert resources from the main fight. I recommend you get the assembly to vote it an unacceptable tactic. Thank you. We will remember your actions if there are problems between us in the future. Later, they did remember that who warned them of the tactic, then voted to allow it in the assembly. If the Fav had bothered to study the Zevib psychology, they'd start to wonder if the humans had even considered the tactic before the assembly mentioned it. The fact that the first privateer attacks didn't happen for almost a month after it was brought up would answer that question. It doesn't take a human a whole month to exploit a weakness. Five years later, 
the same brilliant advisor came to Zub with an ultimatum. You will stop scanning our ships with your prisoner transports. Will we? You will provide full sensor information about the privateers that seem to slip through your territory like it wasn't there. Will we? You will provide all the information the human prisoners gave you about our military operations, procedure, equipment, and tactics. Will we? Stop saying will we. You will. Our fleet outpowers yours by six to one, and we outpower the human fleet by three to one. There is no doubt about the end of this war. This is an ultimatum. Aiding the humans will only make you our next target. We were always your next target, but you didn't outpower the humans by three to one. It was 3.2 to 1 a month ago, but that's before you lost the Tier 6 Dreadnoughts. I remember the day we lost three Tier 5 S's in the afternoon. Hurts, doesn't it? Oh, we've been deploying low-powered versions of our ships. They actually have twice the power you think they do. But why would you do that? You've lost battles. Yes. That's what happens when you fight a challenging opponent. Sometimes you lose. You prefer opponents that aren't challenging, because you want to be sure of dominance at all times. Because you were sure of your dominance, you didn't bother to ask about the peculiarity of Zevop evolution. You see, our females sexually select on the basis of our success against dangerous predators. That has caused male Zevop to evolve a distinct desire for a challenge. But not just any challenge, potentially lethal ones. Of course, fighting the humans was too big a challenge even for us. You are not like us. You wouldn't climb a mountain just for the thrill of not falling off. Of course, that is not the only reason we downpower our ships. We want to deceive you about our true power. We needed experience in battles that weren't cakewalks, and of course, we needed the IWL and V to not panic and convert to full war economies. Now that the deception is over, we'll be destroying their main fleets in the next battle, which is starting as we speak. Well, we handicapped ourselves, this war was challenging. It won't be now. This is why you attack us. You'll find that we are more than a challenge. Please. You actually think of having a 3 to 1 power advantage over humans means you'll win. You have nowhere near the adaptability technically or tactically to make that work. Right now you couldn't beat us or the humans, but you could still be a source of entertainment. I wanted you to personally witness the message. I'd send the humans. And to your government, Zuv opened up the InstaStyle Universal Channel. To all it may concern, the Fav have just presented an ultimatum which I, on behalf of the Zeva Primary Council, have rejected. We are in a state of war with the Fav Empire, or the conglomerate, or whatever they call it. To the humans fighting the Zuv, I understand 15 years is not enough time to heal the wounds we inflicted. But let me just say this one thing. Last one to the Fav homeworld is a rotten egg. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.